The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Cheers, sir. Cheers. What is that? Black, Black rifle? rifle. Yeah. We're up, Chris. What's up, baby? How are you? Good to see you, man. So, how long have you been in Texas now? Two years. Wow. Do you First. feel like this is where you live, or do you like? This feels day? like home. Really? Now. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I went back home for Christmas in the UK, and it's so strange to go back to a place that you know so well, you're super familiar with, but you're kind of different, and everything's changed, but everything's the same, and you fall back into old patterns. You remember that tree that you used to walk past on your morning walk and all of It's very disquieting, but it's fun. It's nice. The oddest thing for me is the contrast and the amount of freedom you have for things that you would never think were important. Like... Uh, these little nicotine things in California, you can't buy this because it's flavored. Mm-hmm. In California, you can put a tent in front of people's houses and fucking cook meth, and no one says anything. No one does anything. You could commit violent crime and you get arrested and released with no bail. They never find you again. There's the there's the laws are so ridiculous, but you are not allowed. To have flavored nicotine. Flavored nicotine is dangerous, Chris. They're trying to ban flavored vapes in the UK very aggressively, <laughs> super aggressively. It's like that's the big deal. That being said, I think it's like some non-insignificant percentage of school children are using vapes. Like it's there's very a, addictive. There's a no vapes sign yeah. in schools. Like, like that wasn't something that was already self-evident. Well, cigarettes were a big deal when I was in high school. You know, uh, a lot of kids smoke cigarettes. It was a cool kids thing to do. What's the smoking age in America? I think it's 18. Yep. 18? Legally, yeah. Legally? Yeah. Yeah. It's 18. But when I was a kid, uh, people got cigarettes. Someone got you cigarettes. I don't know. When I was young, I remember before I turned 18, they changed the legal drinking age. Because the legal drinking age, I believe, used to be 18. And then they bumped it up to 21. I was like, damn it. Dude, have you ever seen the video of when DUIs came in in the 1980s and they're interviewing people in cars. Yeah. That is one of my favorite (laughs) videos of all time. Please, Jamie, let me watch that video again. Yeah, the the lady's like, we're going to bring in communism. (laughs) Don't know what the world's coming to. Man can't work all day. And she's got a kid. Yeah. She's got a baby in the passenger seat. No seatbelt. Oh, my God. And even if you did have a seatbelt, there's no airbags. Those things are death traps. It's one of my favorite videos. <laughs> there's this weird, there's something I've noticed since being in America. Your guys' uh, relationship with drink driving is a little bit more lax than it is in really? the UK. Yeah, the number Not of- in Texas. If you, if you have any alcohol in your system at all, they'll arrest you. Like, if you, if you get pulled over and they said, have you had anything to drink? And you say, yes, I've had one drink. You're getting, you're getting Dude, arrested. I fucking love this video. Drinking and driving here <laughs> is viewed by some as downright undemocratic. It's kind of getting common this when a fella can't put in a hard day's work, put in 11, 12 hours a day, and then get in your truck and at least drink one or two beers. They're making laws. <laughs> Look at the baby. When you want to, you, can't, you have to wear a seatbelt when you're driving. And... Yeah, she's wearing a seatbelt. It looks like the baby. Say, the baby is more protected than I thought it was. It had that thing in front of it, yeah, yeah. that little cushion in front of it. So it seems like she was like a little bit more. The funniest thing about that See is that thing? their issue is it's not with not being allowed to drink, then drive. Theirs is one worse. It's drink and drive. Right. You mean I can't time. drink and, yeah, exactly. Constantly. <laughs> 
<laughs> Dude, I love that video. Oh my god. Yeah, you definitely shouldn't drink and drive. That's true. But also, you don't really want people telling you what you can and can't do. And once they start dealing it with anything, Bill, you gonna bring in communism? <laughs> I pretty see. I see. It's cartoonish. It's very cartoonish when they're saying that. It's very ridiculous. But kind of, they have a point. That this is the only point. If you let someone tell you what you can't do, they're gonna expand that power of telling you what you can't do. Yeah, always. One of the problems is that puts. That's sobriety was somehow not fitting with the American way. What? Measuring, measuring, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Measuring sobriety. Okay, hold on a second. Okay, during the 1950s, the American public and the judicial system were still erring on the side of the drunk driver. Oddly enough, some people were concerned with the mechanization of measuring sobriety was somehow not fitting with the American way. Kind of isn't. It kind of isn't. But also, you shouldn't drink and drive. Like, both things are true. We should, like, teach people that you should never fucking do that. The, the, I went to high school with a kid, and um, he was a good guy. I, I knew him from the time I was, like, 14. And then when, I guess, a senior in high school, he was drunk, and he crashed his car and killed his friend. And I remember running into him on the street. We were both walking, and I walked by him, and he, he's had his head down. And, you know, I wasn't good friends with him, but I was friends with him. I always said hi to him. I said, I know him. I said, hey, man, how you doing? He's like, Meh. he was done. He was done. His life was over, man. He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, a regular kid anymore. He was a kid who killed his friend in a drunk driving accident. It was, it was a different human. Like, his life, he was this one guy. He was a good, normal guy, fun guy. People liked him. He was a friendly guy. And then all of a sudden, a pariah. All of a sudden, everyone knows what you did. All of a sudden, what you did, you can't believe you did. This horrible, horrible, horrible thing. And you did it when you were so young. A kid. He was, he was 16, 17, whatever he was. He didn't know what he was doing. He had no idea. Nobody, no, you're so stupid when you're that young. Your brain's not formed yet. And you can't treat them like they're adults. You just can't. They're not adults. You know, you're talking about a 16-year-old kid, a 15-year-old kid. Like, fuck. What? When they're doing things, they don't even know what's real. I mean, and it's all completely dependent upon how they were raised. Like, you could get really lucky and have solid parents and really have, like, a good understanding of how to behave in the world. Or you could get fucked and you got some dad who beats the shit out of you and he's always on meth and your mother's a fucking liar and she steals money and she, she sells people stuff. You know, that's that could be your reality, too. And to expect a person like that to behave exactly the way you do with your nice life is crazy. It's crazy. And it's one of the weirder things that we do. And instead of instead of looking at the origins of what are, what are the origins of horrible behavior? It's all terrible childhoods. It's almost all terrible childhoods. Instead of looking at that, all we look at is a crime. It's very strange. It's a weird thing. It's like to know logically that you just have to take a few extra steps and you say, well, what's the root of this problem and how do we address that? How do we make it better? We have so much money for other things. We don't have any money for that? That seems like one of the most fundamental problems any country would face is the amount of people that grow up that become violent criminals because they were fucked from the time they were young. They had no shot at life. Their whole childhood was just violence and chaos. 
And that's not an insignificant number of people in this country. And yet, any foreign conflict has to be addressed with the utmost urgency. When the things that are paramount to our daily existence right here, with what our tax dollars pay for right here, are just completely ignored. Completely ignored. Never discussed. They'll talk to you about climate change. Climate change, let me tell you something. If you live in the south side of Chicago and you get shot, climate change doesn't mean jack shit to you. Okay? We should address, we should address what the fuck is going on right now, not, not climate change. Do you know what the ideas of luxury beliefs are? You heard of this? No. So it's been repopularized by my friend Rob Henderson. So luxury beliefs are ideas held by the upper classes that confer status on them, but mm. often cause costs for the lower class. So the seminal example of this is defund the police. Yeah. I walked past a house in Austin, not far from where I live, that has a defund the police flag in the garden out front uh. and a private security sticker in the front window. <laughs> It's so stupid. It's such a virtue. You know, do you know Will Store? Of course. He's been on my show. Yeah. I, was, I went for breakfast with him yesterday. He's great. And He's fantastic. Of course you don't. Um, Will Store, who wrote that book, The Status Game, was explaining all this and how what people are doing, what they're actually doing. He's outstanding. So, so good. There's it, a, it relates it to so many behavior patterns in life. It's just like, oh, my God, this all makes sense. He's a legend of storytelling. He's one of the best writers. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. You guys know how much it means to me to stay in shape physically, but your mental well-being is just as important. When we keep things bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively, even if it seems like something small, like maybe you're stressed about work, maybe you feel a little lonely. It all starts to add up. And if you don't deal with it, well, these feelings will sit there and continue to fester. One way to work through whatever's weighing you down is talking. It helps more than you think. And if you need a safe place for that conversation, I recommend therapy. It's a great tool that you can use to figure out your feelings and learn positive coping skills. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient and flexible. It's easy to get started, too. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can even switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com J-R-E today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot J-R-E. This episode is brought to you by Hostage Tape. First of all, what a great name. Um, this, is a, this is a product that I use, and I started using long before it was an ad. Your sleep game is about to get a whole lot better, kids, because I want to introduce you to hostage tape. Put simply, it is tape for your mouth. But you're probably wondering why you should even need that. Well, if you're a mouth breather, if you snore a lot, or if you suffer from sleep apnea, this could make a big difference. This mouth tape can reduce or eliminate snoring and apnea, and at the same time, it'll help filter the air going to your lungs, increase your oxygen uptake, and improve circulation, which will make you feel more energized. It has tons of other benefits, too, like it helps with bad breath, dry mouth, and of course, better sleep. 
for you and your partner. Don't let bad sleep hold you hostage. Shut your fucking mouth with hostage tape. Buy it today and get a special buy two, get one free offer. That's a 90-day supply. Just visit hostagetape.com slash Rogan. That's hostagetape.com slash Rogan. This is in the UK. And uh, yeah, there's this really interesting <clears throat> example of my friend Mary Harrington talks about how the death of chivalry has caused an increase in domestic violence. So it's very interesting. So this is a good example of this luxury beliefs thing. So yes, during the 1960s and 70s, if you were an upper class lady and the guys that you were dating were from households that had two parents that had taught them how you're supposed to treat people and they weren't mistreated and all the rest of it. They grew up like a well-balanced person. To them, it might seem a little bit patronizing for the guy to hold the door for you, right? Or to pull the chair out or to make sure that you get home okay. Yeah. Because you live in existence in which the danger of that not happening, not going appropriately, isn't that great. Now, what wasn't understood by a lot of the upper class feminists that were talking about this uh, derogation of chivalry that they wanted was that that doesn't <clears throat> necessarily work for the working class or the underclass woman who is dating a man whose father beat him or stepfather beat him or didn't have a father or was homeless or addicted to drugs or in violent crime. And she thinks it's a direct line, a single spectrum from you should hold the door open for women to you shouldn't beat your wife. And I think that it's true. Women should be seen as something that requires additional protection, that are precious and, and should be respected. If you derogate the stuff up here, sure, maybe it means that you liberate some of the working, the upper class women to be able to go and do whatever they want. But what does this cause downstream when you don't have those guardrails in place for the men that the lower class women are dating? Yeah, well, just all men, period. And it should be, and it's, here's the thing, that it, this is how it's looked upon in the martial arts world. If I know that I can fuck you up and I fuck you up, I'm probably a bad person. It's never good that a guy who is like some trained killer goes after some regular guy, picks a fight with him and fucks him up. It's never thought of as good. It's always negative, like almost entirely negative. Like the entire fan base will recognize that terrible behavior. So if you're a man and you have someone who is your wife and she's smaller than you and female, you have the craziest advantage physically. It's the most awful tyranny physically if violence is involved. If you decide that you're going to start swinging and teaching people lessons and, and then lying to police about how someone got hurt and, just, oh, she fell down the stairs. And if you grow up seeing that, that's even m maybe more fucked up because that's your model for what and that's probably what their model was when they were growing up but it's as men we have to look at that as the weakest of most disgusting behaviors including beating up on people that are weak well that's the reason for the male monkey dance as it's called the reason for that is that it's rivalry between two potentially uh, matched males and we don't know who's going to win. Yeah. That's the reason for the conflict. If yeah. there's a huge disparity, what's the point for the conflict? You already know who's going to win, right? That's why right. beating up a 70-year-old guy or a 10-year-old boy isn't a big deal. But if you're a 21-year-old dude that's about this, this is exactly why you have weight classes, 
right? It's yeah. to create this degree of intrigue and fairness in the rivalry. 100%. 100%. Yeah. If a heavyweight beat up on a bantamweight, everyone would be furious. But that's what like a lot of men are and a lot of women are. It's it's crazy. If that happened in the male martial arts world, people would be furious. It's just it's just fucking it's horrible and it's just it's it's weird that it's always been a part of like cinema. There's always been scenes like James Cagney smacks a girl in the face. And the, and and there was one god, I wish I could remember the movie. It was so crazy. But the the it was like a 1950s movie, and the dad was spanking the 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 wife, spanking her, like had her over his knee, and the young girl was saying that that's how he shows mommy that he loves her. God, you remember that movie, Jamie? I know we played it. It was insane. It was like this insane scene from a movie where you're like, what? What the fuck am I watching? But it's. It's a time capsule into this evolving understanding of how human beings interact with each other. That's what it is. And it's a time capsule from less than 100 years ago. What was that super what? famous? Is this Shirley Temple? Yes. Uh, yes, it's Shirley Temple. Fine. That's what it is. Bro? Thanks, Mama. You're darn tootin' I did. That means you love her. That's what I've been trying to tell her. <laughs> oh, my God. Dude. <laughs> You darn tootin'. <laughs> darn tootin' I am. The guy's got someone, over, someone's over daughter knee. over his knee, and he's spanking her into submission. Spanking her. That'll holding teach her, her. And spanking her. That means you love her, Shirley Temple says. Shirley Temple was like the propagandist. She was like a young propagandist. I can't tell if that's actually her. I'm trying to type <clears> it in, and it's not. It's not her? her? So it might be someone else. How many of them were there? How many of them young, famous girl actors were there? How many of them came out great? Zero? It's a mixed bag. Britney Spears is a work in progress. <laughs> I do not think children should be developing in front of the world. I think that's an insane amount of pressure. I think becoming famous in front of the world is an insane amount of pressure. Becoming a child and as you're growing up, mm. you're in front of the world. That's not manageable. Like the, you're, no one's designed like that. You're going to blow the hardware. I had this idea about we always hear the problems of child stars. Macaulay Culkin, Britney Spears, too yeah. much fame, too young. And I don't disagree that thinking about, oh, my God, this person's basically never known the world without adoration and attention and focus and scrutiny and all that stuff. Right. But there's a really interesting question about what happens if you're a, you know, let's say, for example, Canadian psychologist who's been working away in the dusty annals of some university yes, for a while. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and out of nowhere... You get thrust into the limelight, and then this bald MMA commentator plucks you out of obscurity, and now you're one of the most talked about people on the planet. Yeah. The interesting thing here is, as the child, yes, you didn't know what the world was like before. I understand that can be disquieting. But what about when you had a sense of self? Right. What about when you thought you knew who you were and your place in the world and your place in the status hierarchy, as Will would state? Yeah. What about that? And then you just get ripped from your moorings and you're just out in space and the ISS is going past you and you're... You're certainly going to make some mistakes. There's no way around it. You've never managed those waters before. If you just get in a, a raft for the first time and you're going down white waters to navigate, you're probably going to fall in. Like, you're probably not good at this. You if the acceleration is quick that. as well. Yeah, if you're, you're in a kayak and, you know, you're hitting rocks, you're probably going to fall in. 
you don't know what the fuck you're doing. But once you figure out what you're doing, then you can kind of achieve some sort of level of balance. But for him, uh, I think a lot of it was exacerbated by uh, the benzodiazepine thing. So he was taking um, anti-anxiety medication. He didn't understand when it was prescribed to him how addictive it was and what the consequences were of getting off of it. And he talks about it a lot. And I think he was sick for over a year. I'm pretty sure that you, there's a number of psychiatrists that are hesitant about prescribing that for more than a couple of days. And Jordan was on it for months and months and months. It seems like even for a couple of days, you're like, you're just kissing death. Yeah. I just want to kiss you death. Have you, know? you seen Have you seen the Instagram account Mug Shorties? No. Oh, what is it? My yeah. God, this is one of the greatest things on the internet. I can't <laughs> believe I get to teach you about oh, Mug Shorties. Boy. Come I'm on, J Mo, let's do this. Yeah, this is a fun account. So, <laughs> it's images, mug shots of girls that have been taken in to uh, for questioning. So it'll say in the top in the de- in the description what they've been charged for. Look at the look at the the comment below. She can drive me while intoxicated. Your Honor, we're under her influence. Her eyes are intoxicating. Your Honor, Your Honor. I think you've been drinking. Keep going. Oh my God, it's amazing. They're very funny. There's my Valentine. Oh, so they're all funny comments. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's it's a bunch great. Of thirsty dudes that are just like I'll fucking yeah, but they seem did, to be making assault. funny yeah. jokes, consensual. <laughs> it oh, seems yeah, to be funny assault. though. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. What is it called? Mugshot. Mug shot, shotties. S H A W T Y S. Shorties, but shotties. O W I. Possession I, of I marijuana and possession of paraphernalia. It was my weed officer. <laughs> There's another one. It was like possession of cocaine, and someone replied and said. It was medicinal. My face ID doesn't want to believe that it's me with this uh, headphone on. It's odd. Um, I would think that, you know, that would be like a really good place to test jokes. You know, as a comic, like yeah. with mug shots, it's like a really fun exercise just to try to find, come up what with What can I come up with? Liner. Yeah, you've got yeah. the way that they look and you've got a short description about the caption. You know who would excel at that is Tony Hinchcliffe. Tony Hinchcliffe would excel at that. Mr. Roast. He's the best at that. There's no one better. There's no one better at like finding something funny about some horrible aspect of what just happened. Jimmy Carr's pretty good. Yes. Yes. He's <clears throat> very good at it. Yeah, the two of them could duke it out. It'd be a lot of fun. I think they might have done like a roast battle. They have. That's right. They have. On TV. Wow. That would be like an unstoppable object and an immovable force. Tony comes up with them. They're so fast. You can't believe they're not scripted. Like his brain just, oh, but it's that, it's like that 24 seven, like in the green room. He's always like got puns for everything. It's just, I don't, his mind just works in a really weird joke writer way. Well, Mark Norman's the same, right? He just can't not do it. Cannot do it. Very similar. Very similar. Mark's even more extreme. Yeah, it's unrelenting with him. Fucking hell. Mark can't see, like, if he gets panicky if we're talking about something weird. Like, he'll, he he goes, I think they're going to think it's boring. <laughs> <laughs> like, his attention span is like, it's so short. Like, I don't think he ever watches documentaries. I don't know. It's just, I was, he's always going. I think I texted him a stat about 77% of 18 to 24 year olds in the U.S. are ineligible to join the military because of being overweight or mental or drug problems. And he just replied with, meal team six. (laughs) (laughs) That's him. 
24-7. That's just how his brain works. He's so good at it. So good at it. It's a mar- it's a marvel of personality. Like when when we do protect our parks, he's just like this. He's like the he's like a, a special. You know, like you have if you're gonna make a really good stew, you, it's not just meat. You know, you want carrots in there. You want potatoes. You want spices. Like he's a critical spice. He's a big carrot. He's something that's very important to that recipe being delicious. Like fucking phenomenal, he's, dude. He's such a good guy too. There's this <clears> idea about. Uh, it, in Blackadder, Rowan Atkinson, this famous British comedy, uh, he was saying, you know your bits, don't you? One of the actors says to him. And he says, this is different. It's spontaneous and it's called wit. And I just always stuck in my mind that there's a difference between having prepared and well-constructed stuff in advance and yes. then being yeah. able to, no matter what it is, whether it's insights, whether it's debate, whether mm-hmm. it's argumentation, whether it's uh, analysis, all of those things, the ability for someone to just turn it on like that you have the verbal sparring aspect of it some people don't like that and then there's some comics that aren't aren't really good at that they're not good at like dealing with audience members or anything like that they're not good at answering questions but they they're good at like long takes on things where they sit alone in contemplation and go over some ironic aspect of a topic and then they write out really good material about it mm. it's still super valid it's like there's no one that's better than the other but it's there's different personalities that get attracted to the idea of constructing a stand-up comedy routine and for some personalities they're not like a conflict personality or yeah well you're a this they're not that guy or that girl they're someone who gets some subject bothers them whatever it is climate change whatever it is and they just sit on it and they're like what is and then they'll be alone, they'll be in front of the computer, they'll get a notebook out, they just sit on it for fucking days sometimes, bounce it around, back and forth, twist it around, start it from this way, start it from, start it from the back, back it up, go from the conclusion first, and then explain your conclusion in a hilarious way. See if it works better that way. And you, you'll, you'll do that, and then that type of comic, like that mindset, can create great bits. They're great comics. But they just don't like to do the audience thing. But that's okay, too. It's like you you can't ask someone to change their personality. But Tony is like he's a razor tongued man. If you talk shit to Tony, he's 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 going to fuck you up. Dancing with death. Yeah. I mean, he's and he's not physically imposing whatsoever. So it makes it even more brutal when he comes after you. The same as Michael Malice. Yes, Yes. exactly. Michael once told me, he said, I couldn't get away with half of the shit that I say if I wasn't five foot seven. Yeah, it helps. It certainly helps. It helps to be, a, a, yeah, like someone who you can't hit because they're they're weaker than you. Yeah. But Tony walks that fucking line. Woo! Whitney was telling me before, I did a little tour toward the back end of last year, which was pretty interesting. And I was saying, what should I expect? He says, expect to get a bit more boring as it goes on. It's like, what do you mean? He said, well, in order for art to imitate life, you have to live a life. And the problem is, if you're on the road, all you know are airports and hotels and dinners and shows and that's it and she was saying that she was in a hollywood scriptwriters meeting and they were saying it's a saturday morning where is she and someone shouted from the back she's at a baby shower and he was like who goes to a baby shower all right uh she's doing a wine tasting she's like no one goes to a wine tasting and the room turned and apparently said no whitney you don't like other normal people do that right so you've got this vicious 
uh, trap of success. It must happen with musicians as well. Like, yes. How are you supposed to, you know, if you're some heartfelt singer talking about your makeups and breakups of relationships, and now you're dealing with the fear of me too. That doesn't exactly give sort of beautiful romance around what you're talking about. The same thing goes for comedians, same thing goes for anything. Like, the whole point of what you're trying to do is be representation, be representative for the normal person. Yes. And the more that your life becomes strange and rarefied and on the road, the less of that you get to experience, which is less inspiration for the art. Yeah, yeah. It's a matter of like, what are you doing when you're on the road? Are you on the road just to make money? Because then you just have to just treat it as a very fortunate job. And you definitely are not going to get the same kind of life experience. You're not. You're just not. You're going to be traveling all the time, and you're going to be staying in hotels. You're going to be doing gigs. Most of your time will be thinking about doing the material that you prepared and getting your set together. But you could still take stuff in if you choose to. You know, you can go to cities and check out museums. You can go to cities and, you know, go on a tour of the town. You just have to be proactive. And you could watch documentaries. Like, I like to watch documentaries on the road. I try to educate myself more on the road than watching something just, just entertaining. So, like, I'm on the road. I'm supposed to be doing stand-up. I'm awake. Let me watch something on Nepal. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me get in, interested in something. Like, let me get my mind stimulated with something other than just performing and traveling. Yeah. But you have to choose to. It's like you have to choose to go to the gym. Like when I, everyone's like, how's the jet lag? I go, you just got to kill it. It's just like a thing you have to do. It's like jumping in the cold water. Like it sucks, but if you do it, you'll feel better. You got to go right to the gym. Like the moment you land, er, plane lands, check into your hotel, gym, gym right away. No ifs, ands, or buts. Go to the fucking gym. Or do a hotel workout. You could do a, a great body weight workout. You could do a yoga routine. In Staying hotel in hotels room. with gyms is the easiest hack it's nice. for that. Oh, it's so nice. If you go to a, a hotel and they have kettlebells, you're like, oh my god, this is amazing. Game over. Yeah, this is amazing. And so you just get a nice workout in, really fucking exert your body, get that sweat going, get your heart rate up, and you'll settle in. All that jet lag shit, it's nonsense. It all goes away, even when you travel. When I go to overseas, it's like, just, just fucking work out one day really hard. And then it seems like pretty much resets everything. Resets everything. It's like it's like a threshold. You want to like really sweat, like really get something, like push it a little bit. So you're like, all right, now we're back. Just whoop. Normality. Yeah, total normality. And then also, you got to make sure you're hydrated. That tr plane travel is just a brutal thing in your body. It's you're probably getting radioactive waves at an unhealthy level, like those stewardesses. You know, I'd love to see a study looking at the what's happening to their telomeres, what's happening to their DNA, you know, yeah. of pilots and stewardesses and stuff. Is there anything like that? I have no been... idea. I'd love to know it, though. There must be. Someone must have done a longevity study on that. you got to think, when they first started doing that, like for all of human history, they didn't fly people in the air. And then they first started doing that. They had no idea. What if it made them psychic? What if like all those, all that radiation, what if it was like a comic book type deal? Like instead of, you know, instead of, you know, you get cancer, you get some crazy new power. Like, in the comic books, everybody gets power. Nobody gets power in the real world. They all the come back books. down and they're green or they're invisible. Or they see things. Yeah. They can see things. They can things. turn you gay. They can see if you, oh, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I think our government's trying that one. I think they could do basically whatever they want. They can see through walls. 
we can come up with all kinds of superpowers that they would get. But ima- but the idea is like we really didn't know what radiation did for you. You know, that's what those uh, those terrible um, injuries that those women got that were using loom. Yeah. The radioactive loom. What is that shit called again, Jamie? Radium. Radium. Yeah, the radium to make girls. the watch faces oh, light so up. Oh, so hard. And they were having babies as well. They were oh, pregnant and their kids had problems. They had holes in their faces. Their faces rotted off. It was horrible. I'm pretty sure. Didn't Marie Curie also have some problem like that as well? I mean, like everybody that did research around radioactive substances, early 1900s, just yeah. got fully, fully fucked. Have you seen the, the hands of the ladies who used to test the x-ray machines? No. Oh, it's a horrible injury, man, because back in the day before they knew that x-rays were dangerous, they had to make sure the x-ray machine worked in the office. So these ladies would put their hand in every day. Oh, before the patient? This episode is brought to you by Hostage Tape. First of all, what a great name. Um, this, is a, this is a product that I use, and I started using long before it was an ad. Your sleep game is about to get a whole lot better, kids, because I want to introduce you to hostage tape. Put simply, it is tape for your mouth. But you're probably wondering why you should even need that. Well, if you're a mouth breather, if you snore a lot, or if you suffer from sleep apnea, this could make a big difference. This mouth tape can reduce or eliminate snoring and apnea, and at the same time, it'll help filter the air going to your lungs, increase your oxygen uptake, and improve circulation, which will make you feel more energized. It has tons of other benefits, too, like it helps with bad breath, dry mouth, and of course, better sleep. For you and your partner, don't let bad sleep hold you hostage. Shut your fucking mouth with hostage tape. Buy it today and get a special buy two, get one free offer. That's a 90-day supply. Just visit hostagetape.com slash Rogan. That's hostagetape.com slash Rogan. Amen. Every so they were day. getting a dose of every, one hand dose every of... Every day. And presumably, oh, was so it always the same hand? You look at the hand. It's fucking gross, man. It's just they, their hands got cancer. They just got hand cancer. Their hands are all shriveled up hand. and fucked up. Yeah. Oh. That's an illustration of one, but there's photographs of one. That one up, up, up above the top row, the middle and the top, that's the one. Look at that, dude. That's a lady who got too many x-rays. Oh, just cooked God. her hand. This hand showing damage from radiation exposure back in the 1900s. See, they didn't know. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. they really didn't know what was going to happen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they would test that motherfucker. Look at that dude's hand. Cooked. Just saw light on the other side. Yeah, so he's just test the hand. See ya. So this is the 1900s, Jamie? That's what it says. Wow. 1865 to 1904 yeah. is when Worked this, with Thomas this Edison. guy lived. A glass blower. Wow. Oh, that's a dude, Clarence. Oh, he would test x-ray tubes he made on his own hands and died after developing aggressive cancer. <laughs> aggressive he cancer. He had both of his arms word. amputated in an unsuccessful attempt to save his oh life. Oh, my God. Shortly after his death, Thomas Edison abandoned his research on x-rays. Uh, Shortly after. Dude, I got to teach you about oh, this. The other, guy. the other guy's fucked, too. There's two. There's two guys there. Everyone's yeah. wrecked. Yeah, what happened to that guy? Jesus Christ. That's... He was saved by the beard. Uh I've got a new man crush that I need to teach you about. Uh-oh. And he died 60 years ago, so it's, oh. a, it's okay. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so, Jamie, can I think this guy might have the best top paragraph Wikipedia description in history. Can you just Google the unkillable soldier and you'll see a Wikipedia entry at the top? Is this a real human? A real human. When, when did he live? 1880 until about 1960 or so. So he went through... Ooh, is he... He's Sisu. 
No. Sir Adrian Carton. Sir Adrian. No, in the beginning of the movie, that's what they. That's, yeah. that's the legend. Yeah. Maybe it's not a real guy. But, but well, this is a Scandinavian movie, isn't it? No, what, it's what, a British who made guy. It? It's a good okay. British. Is it Swedish? What, who made uh, Sisu? Did, sure. did you see Sisu? No. Bro. What is it? It's amazing. What is it? Is it John Wick in World War II? Is this one, <laughs> this one fucking badass soldier bim, 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 that bim, kills bim. all the Nazis? It's incredible. It's the, one of the most satisfying revenge movies. Yeah, so go, go to his uh, Wikipedia, Adrian Carton de Watt. Uh, I think he might have the best. There it is. Lieutenant General Sir Adrian Paul Ghislaine Carton de Watt was a British Army soldier, officer, born of Belgian and Irish parents. He was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest military decoration awarded for valour in the face of the enemy in various Commonwealth countries. He served in the Boer War, First World War and Second World War. He was shot in the face, head, stomach, ankle, leg, hip and ear, was blinded in his left eye, survived two plane crashes, tunnelled out of a prisoner of war camp and tore off his own fingers when a doctor declined to amputate them. Describing his experiences in the First World War, he wrote, frankly, I had enjoyed the war. <laughs> there's dudes like that out there. You just have to know there's guys like that out there. This guy's story. Let me tell you about him, man. <laughs> so he gets born in 1880 to uh, aristocracy in Belgium. And you think he's going to go through the typical aristocratic route. He goes to Balliol College in Oxford. His father wants him to go and study law. And you think, right, that's, that's the end of the story there. At 19, he decides that he wants to go and see war, sneaks away without telling his father, and literally offers himself to either the Boers or the British. The British take him. So Holy shit. He's like, I just want to be in war. His, Holy shit. His father doesn't know. So he's away in war. He gets shot in the leg and the groin, gets shipped back home. His father says, "What you were supposed to be in university, you've now been shot. He's, okay, well, I'll bless this new military campaign you want to go on. He says, I want to be redeployed gets redeployed again to South Africa. He was at the head of the Camel Corps, which was literally a group of people who rode into battle on camelback. So he gets shot. He gets shot in the ear and then in the eye, and then a bullet ricochets and hits him in the same eye again while he's leading these guys into battle. He gets sent back home. The uh, British military say... He wants to go out on the First World War. He wants to go to the front lines of the First World War now. But they said, we can't send a guy with one eye out there because it's going to look like we've got really weak soldiers. So they give him a glass eye and say, the only way that you can go back out is if you wear this glass eye. And he says, oh, okay. In the taxi, leaving the hospital, takes it out, throws it out of a window and starts wearing an eye patch. The first battle that he's in when he rejoins, when he rejoins the army in World War I, a piece of shrapnel explodes his hand and all that's left are two fingers hanging on by the skin of the palm of his hand and his watch actually embeds itself in his arm too. So that, this is the first thing that he's encountered again. Goes to the field hospital. The doctor declines to amputate the fingers. So he just rips them off in front of him because he's in so much pain. The arm then has to be amputated. So he says to the guys again, I want to be redeployed. They're like, you are now a one-eyed amputee. I want to be deployed. Battle of the Somme, his next battle that he goes into. There's reports from other soldiers seeing Carton de Watt running into battle, pulling the pins out of grenades with his teeth, throwing them at the enemy and reloading a revolver with one hand. So this guy is a single armed killer. During that, he gets shot in the... He gets shot through the back of the head. <laughs> <laughs> through the head. Doesn't die. 
in subsequent battles, oh, he uh, he got promoted for 24 hours before he threatened to punch his superior and then got demoted again. So he's just like this totally wild dude. Anyway, he goes through this series of different difficult military exposés. He takes over three squadrons who don't have a commanding officer. None of them have any communication. So he, this one-armed, one-eyed guy, decides to run back and forth between the three different companies communicating his own orders. Rather than using a messenger, he just does it himself. That was what he got the Victoria Cross for, which is our equivalent of the Medal of Honor. During this time, he shot a, a bunch more. You think, right, okay, this guy's just led the most insane campaign through the Boer War and the First World War. Time for him to retire. Wrong. 60 years old, in 1940, he gets conscripted and drawn back up to help run secret missions. So his first mission... One of his first missions, he gets shot down in a fjord going toward Romania. There's a German plane that shot his plane down, circling overhead. Rather than get into the dinghy, because it would be an easy target, this one-armed, one-eyed guy and all the rest of the crew just bob under the water until this German fighter plane runs out of ammunition. That goes away. He finally gets picked up. Second time he goes in a plane, (laughs) this plane crash lands and he swims to shore carrying an injured comrade who survives, one arm, but swims carrying this other dude, gets captured by the Italians. He's then part of five escape attempts and digs a 60-meter tunnel with one arm and a bunch of other dudes. Then he spends a full week hiding out in northern Italy, despite the fact that he's 62 years old, one-armed, one-eyed, can't speak Italian, and has covered in scars. Then he finally, finally gets picked up and released. They said that the only thing that the Italians had left to do was to use him to enable an armistice. They wanted to no longer be a part of the war. They use Carton Duat to be an an envoy between the two uh, nations. And they said, well, you've been a prisoner of war for nine months. You don't look or smell the way that you should do. Why don't we give you a nice Italian tailor? And he rejected their offer to give him an Italian suit and said he would only wear one if they got it from Savile Row because, quote, he didn't want to look like a gigolo. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's a human badger. He's, he's 31 medals, shot nearly as many times, got used. He insulted Mao. He insulted Chairman Mao in China when he got, he got used by Winston Churchill. There's photos of him stood behind Churchill, eye patch, just a, a fucking sleeve, and... The, he's my new look at him look at him wow one of the coolest people from history that no one knows about what an animal what an animal Jesus <laughs> why hasn't anybody done a movie on that guy's life I don't know there's another uh, that that doesn't even really have a particularly good book. He wrote a memoir called Happy Odyssey, which is like, it's a bit, it's written by him as opposed to, you know, a bit more exciting. Uh, Alistair Urquhart, this guy called The Forgotten Highlander. This is probably one of my favorite books. I taught Ryan Holiday about this and it fucking blew his mind. <laughs> so this dude was 18 years old and got conscripted in World War II. He was Scottish, Scottish regiment, gets sent to, I think, Singapore. Then Japan joined the war. The Japanese just invade fucking everywhere, take everything that they can, including him. So this guy is made to forced march for weeks 
with nothing, a loincloth, bloody feet being cut up by the surroundings. He has every tropical disease under the sun for five years straight. Dysentery and malaria and ev- everything that you can get, probably yellow fever and full works. He's part of the forced labor group that's made to build the bridge over the River Kwai, the famous movie. He, one of the prison guards tries to sexually assault him. So he kicks him in the nuts and runs away and hides. But there's not much, like, what are you going to do? Where are you going to run to? You can't survive without the meager amounts of rice that they're giving you. So they find him and lock him in an open tin box to bake in the sun for three days. Doesn't die. Like, right, okay, well, this guy's sufficiently resilient. We can probably use him. If he's this resilient to survive this, he'd probably be a good worker. So let's keep him and we'll do the rest of it. So they then pull him out. They need to transport all of these prisoners. So they put them on what they called a hell ship. And these hell ships were just huge tin boxes with no Swiss cross on the side, which is what you should have to say that you're transporting prisoners of war so that it's not a military vehicle. And they would just toss tiny morsels of food down to 100 men that were in the hold of this ship. And it was baking hot in the midday sun as they're traveling over the water. And these guys still doesn't die. They're stood in their own feces. People are dying left and right, starting to decompose. So because they didn't put the Swiss cross on the side... A U.S. military, I think it was a boat or a submarine, sent a torpedo at them. So his boat that he's on explodes. He then catches a piece of uh, flotsam or jetsam or detritus, like a little bucket that he can sit in so that he can float around. Basically has a fight with another Japanese guy who's also doing the same thing. Finally washes up on shore. He's free, briefly, but he's in Japanese territory. I can't remember what country he washes up on. Maybe Singapore again. He then gets recaptured, put back to work again, and gets knocked off his feet by the bomb blast from Nagasaki. He gets hit by the bomb blast and knocked off his feet by it. Holy shit. 50 years, this guy doesn't talk about it at all. Doesn't say a peep for 50 years by orders of the British government. And then finally writes this memoir as a call to arms to bring the Japanese to account for the atrocities. You know, we had the Nuremberg trials and stuff yeah. for the Germans, but there wasn't that similar kind of reckoning for the Japanese. And he thought this is, this is unforgivable because of what he went through. For the rest of his life, he could only eat tiny, tiny amounts of rice. His stomach, his whole digestive system was ruined by starvation, just extended starvation for this five-year period and very, very tiny morsels of food. So his stomach had adapted to that, and and that was this guy, and he died in the early 2000s and then wrote this book, The Forgotten Highlander. Wow. I got to get that. It's so fucking good, man. That's on the list now. Wow. Yeah, the I read uh, the, the Rape of Nam King <sighs> years ago. It's, it's, What's it about? It's about Japan during the war, what they did in China, just the atrocities they did with people's children, their babies in front of them, like the way they just tortured people. So what, what people can justify doing in times of war is absolutely terrifying. And when you read about it, and you read about it from a time that's less than 100 years ago, it's so shocking. It's so shocking. Because when you think of the Japanese, when I think of Japanese, I think polite culture, warrior society, a long history of martial arts, amazing engineering, incredible automobiles. I think of all these like positive things. Mm. I don't think of like w- what happened during World War II. It's really terrifying. There was a documentary about it too that I remember I had to buy online from VHS tape. It was very hard to get. It was some sort of a 
educational documentary, like something that they would show at a university. It's like, oh, God. It's about horrible. the rape of Nanking. Yeah, it's just horrible. Just, just to know that people are capable of doing that to other people, to children and women and just anybody, anybody that's not them. And you can get away with it because this is war. There's been an awful lot of very atrocious things that have been justified by those people are different to us. Yeah. Let's do something to them. Any any reason, whether those people vote Republican or those people don't believe in masks or those people, you know, they, they have a different belief. Those people don't believe in our one God. Those people, they're, they're of the unclean faith. There's so many different ways people can look at someone as an other. And it's just, it's insane what we're capable of when we do that. Because you could ju- ju- people openly justify horrible things to people online. I see it all the time from Twitter. Justify horrible things to people because the people don't believe what they believe. And they'll attribute like the most nasty fucking descriptions of people just because they don't believe what they believe. It's like the least charitable view is highlighted the most. Just so... You know, it's this thing that we have, this ability to other people. It's one of the worst aspects of human beings. I think it. I think more people are bound together over the mutual hatred of an outgroup than the mutual love of an in-group. Yep, I sure. Think, I, I think there's this really great psychological study that was done where they bring, <laughs> they bring a, a big group of people into a lab and they toss a coin. And if it's heads, you're blue team. And if it's tails, you're red team. So... Toss the coin, and it's around about an even split, maybe 50-50 people. And they go over to the blue team and they say, so what do you think about the red team? And they're like, well, I mean, they're not as smart as us, are they? They're a bit, like, fucking stupid. You've seen, you've seen them over there? Like, then, I mean, we're definitely, we're definitely the best. See, you actually just saw the selection criteria. The selection criteria was heads or tails, 50-50, completely arbitrary. Yeah. Immediately, as soon as you give people the opportunity to find some tribal bias to lock onto, they yeah, go. they go. Yeah, well, people are cowards too. That's part of it. There's a lot of strength in being a part of a, an aggressive group that believes one thing. You know, that's why you see like a lot of people that have been sort of bullied their whole lives become the biggest bully if they're on like a, a something, some side of something that they think is like uh, moving progress, moving social progress in a certain direction. They get super hyper aggressive. You know, it's like this is their chance. This is what I think most people don't understand about evil. The number of evil people in the world is probably quite low. What you have is people doing evil things for what they think are good ends. Mm -hmm. Almost all of the atrocities that we've seen throughout human history are people trying to doing something they feel is righteous. Yeah. Because that's what would motivate them. It's very unadaptive for us to do something that we know is wrong. Right. The best way to get someone to be a part and be uh, go along with a, an atrocious act is to make them think that it's in service of good. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Which is why we enjoy movies like John Wick and Sisu. Cause like, Retribution. Yeah. He, they, these people deserve it. Show, show them the trailer for Sisu. It's amazing. <laughs> How old is this movie? It's not that old. Two years? It, it, it was made during the pandemic, came out 2022. and 
There's maybe like know. three words said in the whole movie. Came out this 2028. There's all of those stats about the number of people that jo- that uh, Keanu Reeves kills. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I can't. I will ask after this. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> it's so good. He throws a mine and yeah. hits a dude in the head with it. It's so good. He's a John Wick pilled gun. Gun Maxin killer. Look, I'm a giant John Wick fan, but it's John Wick times two. That's because so it's Nazis. He's not just killing like dumb Russian hitmen. He's killing Nazis. I, I checked. They tried to steal his gold. It was made after the Unkillable Soldier. It said it was modeled after uh, uh, Rambo, basically. What? <laughs> from First Blood. And, uh, Rambo from First Blood was and a, a good real one. life military sniper named Simo Haya. Oh yeah, I heard about that that, that dude. Um, it's it's funny when you you think about a movie like Rambo. Like Rambo is it's a film that's indic. It's another time capsule. It's indicative of a like a kind of a corny time. Yes. People were kind of corny. It's like, a bit cheesy. Movies are just like they're they're hard to. Things are so much more uh, identified, like patterns of behavior. People are so much more sophisticated socially. I think about stuff. It's very difficult to get like a Rambo type movie made today. You know, to make like some of those, like the first blood ones. There was just some, like some Chuck Norris movies. They're fun to watch, mm. but they're so indicative of the time. What's this one? This is the trailer. Oh, right? the trailer. Oh, it's just a lot of talking. I thought it'd be more action. That's okay, Warren. Don't worry about the soapy stuff. Just save it. Try. Don't move. I don't want you to cut your own throat. John Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I miss this guy. <laughs> One man. One man they pushed too far. Straight for the top. We've talked about him a few times because of the gray man, but they recently just said, uh, Sly said that Ryan Gosling could be the only guy who would like vouch for Rambo. But he oh, might be too to pretty. carry on the torch? Yeah, he might be too pretty to do it, though, or something. Look at this shit, Adam. He's going to jump in the water. This is basically the full movie. <laughs> yeah, this is a long trailer. <laughs> Everyone's TikTok brain wouldn't allow a trailer this long anymore. Explosions. <laughs> Fucking brilliant, dude. But it's it's a sign of the times. It's like like that. W- did we find out who the little girl was in that movie? Oh, I did. I found the movie. It's called. Uh, hold on, I have to pull it back up. Um, Frontier Gal is what the movie was called. Frontier Gal. And. It wasn't Shirley Temple. Beverly Simmons is the uh, So that was a that was a time capsule. Oh, like. And Rambo is a time capsule too. It's a time capsule to like a time where the art form was just different. That was her. Can I just check? I, I, I don't seem to recall the complex plot of John Wick. Is he still killing people because of his dog? Well, see, they dragged him back in. See, here's what happened. <laughs> He killed everybody because of his dog, and then he was ready to retire. How far did that go? First one? Second one? Second one. Okay, second so two, one, two yeah. full episodes of killing. Yes. Yep, well, he had, to, he had to get his car back in the second one. So first so one was got dog. the Mustang Second back. one was car. Yeah. The, in the second one, he shows up. He kills everybody at the warehouse that's storing all the stolen cars. And then he toasts, make a toast with the Russian mob boss to peace. And, uh, you know, it's like, can a man like you really know peace? He's like, why not? He's like, okay, cheers. So the guy freaks out that John Wick doesn't kill him. John Wick leaves, 
Goes back to regular John Wick. He doesn't have the slick back hair anymore. He's not wearing the suit anymore. Just like a regular guy. And uh, he's got his car. It's all fucked up. And they fix his car. And then a dude that he owed a mark or two comes to visit him and says, I want you to kill my sister. And he has to do it because he had this marker with his blood's in it. And so then he's back in the business. Uh, that's the second one. Yeah. And then he kills that guy. Spoiler alert. And then the whole world's after him. That's John Wick 3. And then there's a fourth one. And then there's a fourth one, which is basically a superhero. <laughs> and the fourth one, they're like they're over the top crazy. They're so, I, I, I enjoyed the fourth one, but it's a very different thing than the first one. The different thing, the, the first one, you could kind of believe that that could really, all that could really happen. By the fourth one, they had a band and all that shit. <laughs> like they have bulletproof <laughs> jackets, and it's just like they're running into bullets, and it's just, it's cartoonish, but it's fun. The most crazy movie across into real world thing that I've learned about is this modified RX-9 Hellfire missile. Have you seen this? No. This thing is insane. Do, do the honors, Jamie. Let's look at this. So, is it the, one of the hypersonic missiles that changes directions? This is more precise. So what they realized <laughs> was that collateral damage is a big deal in war zones because if you kill people that aren't just the target, you galvanize that group against your... Yeah, there it is. America's secret ninja bomb packed with blades that shred militants alive. Oh, my God. So there's no explosive in the front of it. It gets deployed using the, an existing platform. But rather than having an explosive payload, these razor-sharp, six razor-sharp swords come out the side of it and just turn human flesh into smoothies. Whew. Look at what it does to a car. Oh, my God. But how precise this thing is, it's so precise. Yeah, the flying Jinsu, uh, I think it's colloquially called the Jihadi Blender. Oh, my God. And they uh, just shoot it into cars. So it's so precise that you need to know which seat of the car the, uh, the bad guy's in. Ba bad dude's in, yeah. Because if it was a long enough vehicle, front right seat and back left seat, back left seat will be scared, but it'll be fine. So there was this dude, uh, one of the, supposedly one of the masterminds behind 9-11, They'd done surveillance on this guy, and every morning he'd come out and drink his coffee on his balcony. Same balcony, he'd come out and he'd drink his coffee and, and, and look out. So they just timed two of those things. Comes out, and that's it. There's no explosion. There's no nothing. And this guy just gets turned into dust. They, they shot two of them at him? Two. It, just in case the first one missed, I think. Oh, my God. Laser guided, set it off. And here's the other thing, because it only propels for the first two seconds, and then after that, it's just using fins. So it works out the trajectory. So it, there's not even the sound of engine coming toward you. It's just oh. silence and then blades and death. Oh, it's a flying, it's a flying rage hypodermic. <laughs> Do you know what a rage hypodermic is? No. Rage hy hypodermic is a wild mechanical broadhead that they invented for bow hunting. So instead of a bow hunting broadhead being a fixed blade like a solid piece of metal that's screwed into the end of your arrow instead it's a mechanical broadhead that upon impacting tissue opens up into this huge opening they make giant holes they call them rage holes and they kill animals quick and it's kind of controversial in the in that if your blade hits a branch on the way in or 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 a, like a stalk of hay or It'll something like it. that. It could trigger it, and then it would fuck up the trajectory of the arrow, and it might lead to a bad shot. 
Um, so there's that, and then there's a, it, could, it, could, it could get deployed accidentally in your in your quiver, and you might not know it when you're drawing and shooting. It could be open, and it could open up in flight. But if it stays closed and it does impact, it makes a giant hole. Cam took me to the bow rack. Ah, you did uh, lift, run, shoot. I did. He fucked me up. He made me go up the hill. <laughs> he, made me, he made me carry that rock. How long did you have? What is it, like two miles? I don't know. I think it's maybe about a mile up and a mile down, but it's pretty steep. And, I mean, there's a 72-pound rock you. got to carry the rock down? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think – did we carry it down? I can't remember. Wait, oh, I think you're supposed to. Fuck. But he made me He made me do the trail, and then he made, but he taught me to shoot. And I was looking at – with uh, – gruesome glee looking at all of the different types of arrows in yeah. the bow rack looking at all of these different heads and all of the different attachments it advertises exit wound three inch diameter exit wound mm-hmm. five inch diameter cam shoots this thing called a carnivore and the carnivore is a, a broadhead that's got four blades it opens up a canal in these animals yeah, it's like for broad, like for bow hunting though, it's extremely effective. If you can get it into the vitals, it's like that's a that's a lethal shot every time. It's such a big hole. I wonder how many. Uh, is it more humane to kill something more easily? Is yes, my, is my question. Yeah, it's more humane to use a rifle. In a lot of circumstances, um, look at that's that. literally that's literally just for. the non. Yeah. Rocket propelled version That's of what, what we just saw. Yeah. yeah it's like a carnivore. Go back to that carnivore thing so you can see what it is. So that's a that's a really big one. So the, the controversy in bow hunting is always like fixed blades are more durable, but mechanical blades uh, have more cutting surface. What is that? What is that? Jesus. Turn stuff into pizza slices. Colorful Eagle. That's what it's called. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Yeah, that seems, that seems like it wouldn't fly good. See, the problem is they have to fly good, too. And the more metal surface area you have, the more you have a chance of what's called planing. So as the crosswinds hit your, your arrows, you can the, your, your blade can drift because the wind hits the, the broadhead. So if you have a wide-cut, solid um like fixed blade broadhead. That's a that's another sort Turns of thing an that can catch wind. Yeah, people tune them. Like so, so if you have like a single bevel broadhead. So there's a single bevel broadhead, which is a a broadhead, which is a fixed blade broadhead that has only had the edge sharpened on one side, and that encourages rotation. And that rotation has to align with the helical of your veins. You don't want them to be fighting with each other. So if you have a left helical on your veins of your your arrow, you also want a left helical on this broadhead. And so these are tuned in tightly together. And so you you have, it takes, it's a very painstaking process. You have to make sure you're doing it right. You're going to move your rest a little bit. But once you get it dialed in and you can shoot accurate out to like 60, 70 yards with it, you know that it's called broadhead tuned. So with field points, you don't really have to do that because the fletchings, they steer it enough and you just have to be kind of on target. You have to be closer. But with broadheads, you have to be like really, really locked in. So that's the negative of the broadhead. They made me shoot through the paper to mm-hmm. see where are you pulling yes. accidentally, and then they adjust and tune. And mm-hmm. dude, I loved it. I, I love seeing anyone that loves anything that much. Yeah, that degree of passion to me is. So me and my housemate Zach watch these videos of motocross. You know the, mm-hmm. the Colin McRae. Uh, yeah. Oh, is that rally rally cross? Sorry. And um, these dudes will go out to 
but fuck nowhere Scotland in November and it's pissing down with rain and they're in ponchos and they do it to see and then they turn to each other and go <laughs> and they just lose their shit and it's so dude it makes the hairs on my arms stand up Jamie see if we can find some of these videos they're, it's the most pure loving audience of a thing and just finding anyone the same as Wayne Endicott mm-hmm. at, at the bow rack just the way that they play with the bow mm-hmm. and, and they know that if they add a tiny little bit of flame from a lighter to mm-hmm. uh, the uh, sight that it'll sort of cinch it in a different way and it heats the, the sinew of the thread and it tightens that yeah. in. Seeing anyone that loves anything that much is just, there's something very like gentle and, and honest and peaceful and, and beautiful about that. And it, it is. It fires me up. I couldn't agree more. I, I love watching people make things and put things together. And I love w- watching people work on cars, do mechanical things. Mm. I get, I'd love that shit. But the bow rack, one, one of the things that's interesting about uh, archery is that uh, even just if you're just interested in target archery, any kind of archery that you're interested in, unless you are shooting a traditional bow where there's no sights on it and you're just kind of like doing it by field and you learn how to aim depending upon where you're how much your arrow weighs, you can get pretty accurate with those things, but not nearly as accurate as you can with a compound bow. And with a compound bow, it has to be fitted to your frame. You have to go to a place like the bow rack. And if if you're lucky and you have a place like that, that's great because like they're really good at it. But you might not be lucky, so you might have to travel hours to go to some place. People were. When we were there, I think it was maybe a Saturday morning, and uh, we've driven six hours to come to this place. And you have to go to a good place, too, because the first place I went to, that my draw length, they had an inch longer than it should have been. The peep sight was weird. I had to, like, cock my head weird to look at the peep sight. And then I went to a good place, and they fixed it right. And then I went, oh. This okay, is an this extension is... of my body now. It, it becomes, if you practice it enough, it never really becomes an extension of your body, but you do get so comfortable in that activity that it becomes a normal thing to you. So then that activity is all just about the fine details of breathing and thinking and shot execution in your head. And the goal is always, at least the way I do it, is always to make a surprise shot. I never want to get it to go off. I want to be in full draw. I want to have my pin on the target. And I want to just be concentrated on that arrow hitting the mark. And then I just go through this shot execution thing and it goes off. And when it goes off, the ultimate goal is just watch that arrow go exactly where you wanted it to go. And when I do that at like 74 yards, it is the most satisfying feeling in the world. Just targets. Just shooting at a foam target. It's so satisfying. And it requires so much concentration that in that act of doing that, the world goes away. And that's the key to it. The, that's the key to anything that I really enjoy doing that's very difficult. I think you need little vacations from the world. And if you have an hour and a half <clears throat> to shoot a bow, it can provide you with a vacation from the world. You you are literally only thing. it's so difficult to do and it's so involving and it's so rewarding when you get it right that you're completely locked into this one activity and the world goes away. I love it, man. I love I love the uh, solitude and the peace that you get doing something that you know well and that you can get better at. Yeah. And 
I, I often think about uh, like three types of Chris, dopamine Chris, serotonin Chris, and cortisol Chris. <laughs> and my goal is to spend as much time in serotonin Chris as possible. But, you know, dopamine Chris is, plays on modern wisdom and, and growing the channel and, and, and money and, and yeah. new stuff and, and traveling to new places and th- novelty. Right. And cortisol Chris is dealing with the operations and its executive function. It's answering emails and it's dealing with, with challenges. And there's like cortisol is kind of exciting too. But serotonin Chris is walking with your friends in nature and uh, calling your mom and uh, catching up and having dinner, going to a comedy show, watching live music. And I found that when I'm not feeling balanced in myself is when I'm spending too much time and things aren't bad. Things are going well. They could be even going excellently, but I'm still in dopamine, Chris, a lot. And he's gangster rap and a V8 engine. <laughs> and I want to be, I want to be magic mushrooms in a hammock. Mm. Like, but wait a minute. Pause, please. Cause you just bought a Camaro. I did. You, you son did. of a bitch. You bought an SS too, right? Two SS. Yeah. yeah. 6.2 liter V8. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You embraced American culture. Okay, I just need to get some beers. Did you get a, a manual transmission? No. Okay. I've spent... So, in the UK, almost everybody learns to drive manual. So, there's two types of license in the UK. Manual license and an automatic license. If you learn in an automatic, don't get to drive a manual. You have to take the test as a manual. Oh, my goodness. That's a smart move. Yep. Well, That's one case where England's got us. Fuck yeah. You guys win on that one. Hell yeah. We got I, I, I think... You know, it's a dying thing, obviously, because it's not as it's not as smart. Why do I have to use my left foot, dude? Your entire in the UK, my whole the left side of my body, left arm and left leg, just go chill out, go on holiday for the next hour while I do this journey. I can yeah. use right arm only and right leg. But yeah, I I remember hearing. I think it was Tim Kennedy talking about if you're a guy who uh, is cared about preparedness and you don't know how to drive a manual car, that's not preparedness. Imagine that you're halfway up a mountain and only one car works or you need to get somebody down or there's been a car mm-hmm. wreck or something, and it's a manual car. Are you going to work it out on the fly? Yeah. How many people know to dr- how to drive manual cars in America, do you think? Let's guess. <clears throat> I would say 10%. I'll wow. guess 10%. What do you think? What do you think it is? I have no idea for America. Maybe, maybe I would have guessed like 50, I would have hoped 50%, but I don't know how many people are exposed to them. In the UK, I would say 90%. 90% of driving license holders will be able to drive a manual car, at least. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I saw a lot of them in Italy. Everybody had a manual. Everywhere. That's they don't they give have. a fuck about their cars either. They just crash in like little dinks here yeah, and there. Mm, you know, we're so precious, thing. especially in the UK. I don't know how it is in the US so much. We're so precious. Mm-hmm. But the little scratch, oh, you better get that painted up yeah. in Spain or France or Greece or something. That's just that's a bit of, a, what's it called? Patina. It's mm-hmm. a bit of patina on it. It gives it character. Well, some cars, they look at it that like here. Like if you have a Jeep or something like that, you get it all scuffed up. That's fine. But yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's a good thing to know how to do. It's also, the real problem is if there's some sort of an electronic blast if something happens, uh, like a solar flare that that takes out the grid, and the only because uh, like if electronics get fried, and this is a real possibility, I know you're like, what are you saying? First of all, you have to understand entire planets get fried by supernovas. It's not just electronics. You know, things happen in intergalactic space that 
would end everything for us and that it 100% could happen. You know, that's, that's a real thing. But solar flares taking out power grids, that's a, that's a fucking real possibility. Taking out satellites, that's a real possibility. And one of the things about most modern cars is most modern cars are essentially run by a computer. So if all the computers get fried, guess what? Your car doesn't work. If that's, I mean, if we're running into some sort of situation, some horrible event where all the computers get fried, that means your fucking car doesn't work. You also can't move anywhere. Unless you have an old car. Now, if you have an old car that works on carburetors, you know, th- those are cars, you, like, if you have a 19, an actual real 1969 Camaro, not like the ones that, I have ones that have um, new stuff in them. So all the new stuff is computers. They'll be useless. All the, the ECU that powers all the ignition and the electronic fuel injection, that shit's out the window. Your car's now controlled that's, by China. That, that car, no, it's not controlled by anybody. It's a lump. It's a lump. And it's, unless I could figure out how to put a carburetor on it, and I can't, I'm fucked. You know, and you, have, you would have to like, gut the whole system. The, 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 all the electronics are wired into it. The speedometer's wired into it. It's like, I was hearing that uh, my neighbor has a Tesla, and I think he gets his insurance through Tesla. But they can see the diagnostics of how he drives the car. Uh, so his insurance is way more expensive because uh, it knows how late he brakes, how fast he accelerates, how close to other cars he is. You want to talk about encroachments on freedom? I didn't know they did that. There's an uh, algorithm that's used in China that when someone is applying for medical insurance, it uses the website to track the number of typos and the movement of the mouse. And they've mapped that with an algorithm to predict pre-Parkinsonian, pre-Alzheimic uh, dementia, all of these things. So basically, oh. if you're filling in your medical insurance in China and you fuck up a little bit, your premium goes up. Wow. That's coming. All that stuff's coming. And a lot of dummies are going to gonna sign up for it because they'll, they'll attach it to something you think is important like climate change. And that's how they're going to get you. One third of Gen Z, <laughs> fucking Greta Thunberg again. Uh, one third of Gen Z kids say that they would accept the installation of surveillance cameras inside the home to detect wrongdoing. One third, 30%. I wonder if they really believe that or if they say that because they know it's not happening and they just want to say that they're a good person. It's a lop. Yeah, maybe. It's also, you're also a, a dumb young person that doesn't understand what you're giving up. Well, I think another potential reason for it might be you're part of a generation that has traded your... Privacy. Precisely. Yeah. From well, the they, moment that you were born. You, you know were, what they do? Snapchat. They give each other their locations. Yes, yes. The so, Snap map, I think. Yeah, so all the kids know exactly where all the other kids are. So if you're dating some gal and, you know... And see her with that other person that's yeah. on your friends list. And you see you're not where you said you were going to be. You know? Yeah, it's a... So what do, what do people do now? You know, they just, where are you? I see where you are. There like, was that's kind of weird. You read the terms and conditions of TikTok a while ago. Mm-hmm. I can't remember whether you saw... TikTok has written into its user agreement that it can use the front-facing camera to detect micro-expressions and use that to inform the algorithm. Fuck. Yo. <laughs> yo. So if you, like, see something and go, yo, yep. like, see some crazy Instagram video. There it is. They, like, oh, Whatever it gotcha. is that they know. Yo, there, there's pleasure, there's disgust, there's anger, there's envy. And I bet it's cross-platform. I, I, I bet if they have that app 
that app, they have that ability, and you you have it open. I bet they use it no matter what you're doing. I bet if you're flipping over and now all of a sudden you're on Instagram or now all of a sudden you're on Facebook or Twitter, I bet they still can see all your t- – I bet they see exactly what you're seeing. Well, think about with the Apple Vision Pro that Jamie's going to have to debate about whether or not he takes it back uh, over the next 12 hours. Uh, how much eye tracking? Yeah. What is that able to tell? From what yeah. you're doing, what about the latency between your fingers and your eyes? Is that able to predict uh, early onset dementia or some right. neurological decline? Yeah, yeah. Or could that be used against you if they decide that, like, what 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 do we get Chris on? You know, like I don't like Chris being the CEO of this company anymore. Let's decide that he's in decline. Oh, and let's and use also that. Start gaslighting him. Like, you okay, Chris? You seem a like little. You just seem off lately, dude. Did just you hot gaslighting? Did you see? the outcome from this special counsel report on Biden? No, I did not. Okay, let me pee, because okay. I, this is a big one, and I'm, I'm holding in a pee. So get, let's, get your pee. let's pee together. Okay, let's do that. We'll be right back, folks. Fun as well. Yeah, I like, like, yeah I'm watching a movie. 17 a hours, it's miserable enough as it is. Yeah. I don't need to make it any worse. But yeah, hydration. Hydration on planes, people don't think about. No. It's so important. Or radiation. Did we find out about that? Does, do people die does, on planes? Does, has there ever been a study on the radiation that pilots and flight attendants when receive? I was digging into it. There was not a lot of studies available. One study I found was from 1992, and it just said that like pilots die sooner after they retire, and it wasn't showing no, not radiation. Yeah, but, but isn't that applicable to most men that quit their jobs? Right. It could have been something. A lot of things could have gone into that. People fucking die when they don't have meaning and purpose, too. Yeah. That, that's a real factor. People that retire died significantly sooner. Yeah. Way sooner. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. one of the reasons I think everybody, when they retire, should be issued a dog. Oh, yeah. And that'd be like cool. Like a little Carl. How's Carl doing over there? Is he sleeping? He's <laughs> oh, he's so Carl's good. the cutest little thing ever. He's amazing. He's ama- Yeah, that would help. But I think what also would help is have things you enjoy doing. You know, you you can still enjoy your life without having a job. And if you if you've got enough money where you can, can retire and you feel like you, you could pull that off. You should do stuff. Don't Pursuits. just fuck. Yeah, you, but some people don't know what the fuck to do when they're not working. And work was their everything. It was their entire existence. It was their social status. It was how they made a living. It was their social community. It was all their friends, really, because you, like, you're with your workmates more than you're with your your partner, your your wife, your husband. You, what are the what's the number you, you're awake at home? You get home at six o'clock. You're only going to be awake till 10 if you have to work, if you're doing a 9 to 5. If you're a crazy person, you're up at 11, 11.30, and you don't mind being a little tired in the office. But if you're, like, trying to be on the ball, you're going to go to bed as early as you can. you got to get up at fucking 6.30. you got to commute. How much time are you together? I've been thinking about this idea of uh, hidden and observable metrics for life. So a observable metric would be something like the amount of money mm-hmm. that you earn per year. Uh, it would be the value of the car that you drive or the engine size of the car that you drive uh, or the value of your house. Uh, a hidden metric would be something like the quality of your relationship with your partner, the amount of time that you get to spend without tasks to do, uh, the length of your commute, things like that. Mm. And it's my belief that a lot of people trade observable metrics for hidden metrics all the time. So someone will be offered, hey, Joe, we want to give you a raise. You've been doing really well at work, but this is going to come with more responsibility. We're going to need you in the office earlier. And you're going to be in charge of this floor of 10 people. Okay, how much more money have you got? Well, I've got 
$15,000 added onto the observable metric. But what's the hidden metric cost that you're paying for that? Well, peace of mind and time with your partner. Or you take a, another job somewhere else and your commute is now 45 minutes longer in both directions. Yeah. It's 90 minutes a day that you're not spending with your kids or with your wife or with whatever. And yeah. because money is the ultimate game, it's the best game. It's literally global. It's universal. It can be exchanged between different currencies. I know your game can be compared to my game, can be compared to anybody else's. But I don't get to see the dashboard that tracks the quality of your sleep or the peace of your mind right. or the relationship that you have with your kids or your wife or the amount of time that you just get to yourself. Right. And I think people should be very cautious of trading observable metrics for hidden metrics. And one of the ways that you can try and fix this is to bring the hidden into the observable. So uh, using a tracker of some kind, maybe to track your sleep, uh, that would be a good start. Or if you were to uh, note down in a journal how you feel each day. Oh, well, maybe I feel a little bit better today because I did some... That's just fine. Which is I'm just breaking this. Put that thing, thing down. No worries. Yeah, no. I, I think just overall general happiness gets thrown out the window in terms of the metrics of the numbers. The numbers and the observable things that make you superior. The car, the watch, the stuff, you know. that. But, yeah, I always tell people... One of the things about a house, I've said this many times, unfortunately, but when I first got my first really nice apartment, when I first moved to California, I realized pretty early on, after a while, I was like, oh, this is just my house. This is just where I live. It feels just like the place that I had in New York that was a shithole. You know what I mean? It's just where you because live. Because you adapt to it so quickly? Yeah, it's just where, it, this is home, you know? What, all you need is a safe, comfortable place, that a place where you can cook and eat your meals, and a television or a computer. And it's seen basically those, the same experience. Have you seen those memes of uh, guys just need this to survive? It's, a, <laughs> it's like a lawn chair, a PS5, big TV, and a mattress on the floor. Right. Like, it's like guy apartments or something. Oh, yeah. If you're living with all dudes, there's a chance that you're both. Or just you on your own. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's it. Yeah, for sure. Tell you who I was talking to, I was talking to Dan Bilzerian about this. And he's kind of on an interesting arc because he sort of stepped back a little bit from public life, from doing the stuff that he was doing before. And I was asking him basically whether he thought he'd overshot Dopamine Dan. And he, he said he was considering shaving his head, shaving his beard and going working in an Amazon warehouse for six months to try and do like a hedonic reset mm. to see. The problem is... It was kind of like when Tim Kennedy did the waterboarding thing. There's a difference between electing to do something and being forced to do something. Right. And the fact that you know at any moment you've just got the ejector seat button or that it's going to be over in six months or that it's going to be whatever. Right. I wonder if that changes. But, yeah, he basically said, you know, this rapid use and abuse of all of the things that you can, the partying, the cars, the girls, the jets, the holidays, the travel, the drugs. Where do you go from there? You know, it, it seems like having things isn't fun. Getting things is fun. Not knowing if you're going to get things and then getting them is fun. That's once, the middle of dopamine. Right so once there. you once you have things and you know you can get things, getting them doesn't become that exciting anymore. Then how do you mean? Because if you could just get whatever you want, you don't get that excited about it. Like if you like, okay. 
when I got my first nice car, I got a, a I think it was a 95 Toyota Supra Turbo. And it was awesome. I couldn't believe it. It's like, this is like a real nice new car. And like the car I wanted, a Supra Turbo, was this shit. Um, I couldn't believe I had it. When I'd drive it around, I'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe this is mine. I'd park it, I couldn't believe it was mine. Mm-hmm. But after a while, you you get another car, and then you get another car. And then getting a car is just like, this is a great car. But it's you can just do it when you want to. So you can get to a point where I call it guerrilla Buddhism. So... When people say that material things possess you, they possess you if you're really connected to them and they are your only measure of worth. But the only way to know that material goods aren't really, you're not a slave to them, is get them. Get them, have them, and then go, okay, this is not that important. This is bullshit. This is bullshit. You don't feel better in a $10 million house than you do in a $5 million house than you do in a $1 million house. You don't feel better. You feel like you're in your house. As long as it's not a shit, as long as it's like rats or bugs or you want cleanliness and safety. You want normal stuff that people like. You want to be able to chill on the couch. Couches aren't that much money. Most of the stuff is bullshit. Yeah. My friend James says all wins feel the same. Yeah. And as you start to go up and up and up the first time that you hit a thousand subscribers on your youtube channel or the first time that you buy a toyota supra yeah is the same or maybe even kind of less than when you get a rolls royce cullinan or you get a gold plaque from youtube or you get whatever yeah all of these wins feel the same so i got this other idea that i love about how people sacrifice the thing that they want for the thing which is supposed to get it so a lot of the time Mm. we will sacrifice happiness in order to be able to achieve success so that when we finally have enough success, we can allow ourselves to be happy. So you sacrifice the thing that you want, which is happiness, right. for the thing which is supposed to get it, which is success. Yeah. And it's a super common pattern amongst high performers. You know, they grow up and maybe their parents have high standards for them. And they say that the, the subtext is that love is contingent on what I can bring to the world. And growing up, this person internalizes the lesson. It is very important for me to overperform and they're driven by this desire to do more and to prove people wrong and a chip on their shoulder and all of this. The problem is, I think that on average, high performers are more miserable than the average person. I think that more people are driven by fear and anxiety and a, a lack, a desire for validation and to prove themselves to the world and a desire for acceptance than some perfectly balanced, optimal, loving, I just want to make life the best that I can. That's not to say that there aren't people like that, but I think on balance, most people are driven by that fear of insufficiency and they're hoping that the next thing is going to be the answer. But another friend, Alex, says, you've already achieved goals you said would make you happy. Mm. You've already achieved goals you said would make you happy. How can you presume that your happiness sits on the next side of the next set of goals, given that right now you are on the other side of your last set of goals? So is the key to learn happiness while you're succeeding? It has to be. It has to be. Yeah. There is... You just have to to rewire your your value system and you, you 
the word gratitude gets abused. It really does. It gets tossed into that that word that just like it makes things sound stupid. But gratitude is very important. And if you can actually appreciate where you are and what you're doing, even if you're not doing what you want to be doing, you're going to look back on these days if you're successful in life. And you're going to look back on the days when you're kind of struggling like, wow, like I was finding my place in the world then. Those are exciting times. If you could be excited while also motivated, it'll just it'll help your life immeasurably. And I don't think it's going to steal from your, your drive and ambition. I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that either. I, I used to think that. Yeah, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I know some pretty happy, driven people. I, exist. There's a fear that some people have that haven't really thought about it, that if I allow myself to be too uh, happy or grateful for the things that I've done, oh, what if it kills my edge? It's like, mm-hmm. dude, you are powered by a nuclear furnace of ambition. You think that giving yourself a little bit of gratitude or acceptance or love or serotonin for the things that you've done is going to nuke that? No way. It's not going to nerf any of it. It might if that's your only drive, if your only drive is to achieve financial success. But hopefully what you're doing is rewarding in a way on its own. One of the beautiful things about stand-up is people do stand-up for free all the time. Like big-name comedians like Dave Chappelle does free stand-up all the time. Just show up at a club and do a guest set. Just pop in. He's not, he's not on the list. He's not supposed to be there. Just does it for free. Like what other, How many people's jobs, they just show up and just do them for free? You know, that's if you can find something like that, then all the success and all this stuff, that's all wonderful. But you enjoy doing it so much. It's such a fun activity that mm. you that you're doing. It's not just a making money vehicle. It's a, a, an enjoyable activity. It's so enjoyable. You'll go out of your way to do it for free. Yeah. Uh, Robert Sapolsky, who you've had on the show, yeah. he says uh, dopamine is not about the pursuit of happiness. It's about the happiness of pursuit. Mm. That it's as you move toward things. Yeah. One step at a time. Um, it's not the destination. It's the journey. But it's so fucking trite. I, you're yeah. so right with what you say about gratitude. Yeah, like, they get you. We need to rebrand. There yeah. needs to be, like, it's not you, it's me. Mm-hmm. Like, how many people want to say, oh, Netflix and chill? Like, if <laughs> these yeah. things get captured by cliches and you're like, no, fuck, damn it. I mean it my way, not that way. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the... Uh, that idea of uh, it's far easier to, to achieve your material desires than to get rid of them, mm-hmm. right, than to renounce them. Like, it's way easier to drive a beat-up Chevy truck if your last car was a Ferrari right? because you've, you've closed that little loop. Right. Uh, Mark Manson talks about, um, he has this great question, what pain do you want in life? And he says that it's a much more accurate way of asking the question, what looks like work to everybody else but feels like play to you? Right. That's like a common thing. What? can you do that is play that to everyone else's work that's right. a, a competitive advantage that might be comedy for you for yeah. Chappelle etc I would happily do this for free there are other people out there who would need to be paid an awful lot of money to go through the drama of getting up on stage Yeah. Mark's contention is that any pursuit even the most existentially aligned will regularly feel like work so what you need to look at is what are the pains that you can deal with better than everybody else like if you, there is pain associated, I'm sure, it's not just pure joy as you stare at a Google Doc or a, a note in your phone and you're like, how am I going to get this bit out? Like how do I actually, I can't, I need to make this joke about cigarettes or something and I just can't get it to work. You're grappling with something. There is a 
kind of pain. It's not pure pleasure every single moment. And I think assuming that your pursuits are always going to be perfect, just blissed out, man, and there should be no challenges, like, no, that's not the way that it's going to work, even if it's your calling in life. So a better way is what pains can you deal with better than everyone else? Yeah. And how much do you... How much do you discipline yourself? How much do you like really put a rigid schedule towards achieving goals and no and and an understanding that there's going to be these uncomfortable things? You think like the creative process. It's uncomfortable. That's why people avoid it. That's what Stephen Pressfield's book is all about: the war of art. I love that guy. It's a great, great, great book. Such a good book. Such a good book for creatives. I tell everybody. I used to have. I still have a stack of them out there. Right. He's got a fresh stack. We've got a fresh stack. He sends it because I gave them out to so many listeners. Because there's so many creative types that that don't understand that there's this fucking weird thing that's going on in your head called resistance, and it keeps you from doing the work that you want to do. That's almost always satisfying when it's done. And when you're done, you're like, God, I did it. But, but part of you is going to go, let's not do that. Let's look, check out YouTube. Let's, uh, let's, you know, let's look at this. Let's look at the news. Let's go on the news, man. Maybe some weird shit's happening that you need to pay attention to. And then next thing you know, it's an hour and a half later, and you could have been writing the whole time. And every time I do, just sit down and write, I'm always happier. It's always, but it's, there's always this little bit of a resistance. So it's kind of the same feeling that I get before a workout or before a cold plunge or before anything. It's just this feeling of knowing that there's some shit you got to do. There was this story that I learned about Victor Hugo. So, the jiu-jitsu guy? No, this is a writer. Oh, okay. Uh, I want to say <laughs> Victor Hugo is a, that guy. <laughs> Victor Hugo is a world champion jiu-jitsu guy. He might also be a writer from the 1800s. He might be both of those things. Could be. He's a time-traveling man. Uh, so he was a writer, and he paid his servant to come in every night during the middle of the night while he was asleep and pull the bed sheets off of him, off his bed, leave six pieces of paper in his bedroom and a pen or a quill and lock him in. And until Victor had slid all six pieces of paper written on underneath the door, his servant wouldn't let him out. Wow. The level that people get to. But think wow. about when you're really struggling with the creative process, the ridiculousness of the things that you'll that will look attractive to you. It's like, yeah. I haven't sorted the cigar cupboard alphabetically in quite a while. This, uh, uh, I think that I really think that the cigar cupboard could do with uh, that's interesting. That that brick that's been outside. I really should find a place for that brick. And the bird feeder needs refilling. Like you just find these bizarre yeah. things because your body is just doing everything it can. But this is a Huberman's thing, right? What's it called? The mid-singular cortex, MSC. It's that thing. Apparently, Goggins has got like the biggest one in the world. It's just yeah, the uh, thing that allows you to overcome doing hard stuff. Right. And that actually time... grows. Yeah, it actually grows upon exertion. Yeah. Doing things you don't want to do. Yeah. I think it's real. I, I think I've, I've always recognized that that's a thing. Because when I take time off of working out, it's really hard to go back to it. But if you do it all the time... It just becomes a normal part of your life. Dude, routine is such a vicious cycle up and down. Yeah. I think the whole body's that way. I really do. I think, like, basically the way you can strengthen your your muscles and you can strengthen your cardiovascular system, I think your mind works the exact same way. I really 100% believe that. And I think also the neglected conjunction of the two is significant. It's very important. So many intellectuals just don't think about their bodies, and it's so unfortunate. You're just racked with inflammation and, you know, just weak joints and weak 
muscles and just you can't open up a jar of mayonnaise. It's like you don't want to live like that, man. You don't have to. It's like the idea that the two are mutually exclusive is stupid. That's a stupid idea. The idea that you shouldn't take care of your body and that you should really concentrate on your mind. That's just dumb. It's a dumb thing to do. You don't, you're not going to be doing complex math 24 hours a day. You can take the time to do some fucking push-ups. <laughs> you know? How many people do you think have it the other way around? Uh, 100%, yeah. Well, also because it's um, in today's day and age, there's uh, doing it for the gram, right? So there's like people that are really jacked that want everybody to see their muscles. And so you you're you're doing it. All day long, you're lifting weights. You're you're involved in recovery and all sorts. Of, if you've got the time to do that, it's most. If you have a job too, well, what the fuck? How do you have the time? But if you you don't have a job, if you're like a fitness influencer, you know, I mean, that you, is your job. You're fucking busy, man. You you want to be jacked online all the time? Like, yeah, you're probably not reading a lot of books. Probably not, not meditating not, all that much. Maybe you are. I mean, maybe that's part of your vibe. Maybe you're giving off that uh, holistic vibe. Mm. That's what you're trying to push. You know, you're falling into that line. You know, you're bowing to people and shit. Saying you got to be. <laughs> you got to be careful with that, though. There's a. I, I tried to come up with a an, a name for a trend I saw in myself, which was productivity purgatory, which is even the things that I was supposed to be doing for leisure, I was justifying because they somehow contributed to my output for work or, you know, I wasn't taking a walk in nature because I wanted to enjoy it. It's because I once watched an Andrew Huberman episode that said 15 minutes of sunlight in the eyes improves your productivity throughout the day by whatever, whatever. There's like, if you're not careful, your everything that you do is infused with this desire, this need, this compulsion to be productive. Yeah. And I think that that's dangerous. It is dangerous. It's just not good to be a human being with that. But if you want to be the best at something, you've got to be really obsessive. The the best strategy. If you really want to compete against other top dogs, you're going to have to do more or be better, be smarter, or figure something out that they're not figuring out. Well, it's really a game of who's prepared to sacrifice most. Right? It's also who's prepared to learn the most. Right? Who's who's good at recognizing what actually happened versus what you've been comforting yourself with. What do you mean? If there's a bad result, whether it's a bad result of business or a bad result of uh, your personal life, like there, there's always this desire that people have to find a reason why it wasn't their fault because it's uncomfortable. But if you can recognize, oh, this product tanked because of me. This is a stupid idea. And uh, I need to course correct and I need to realize what I did wrong instead of blaming the suppliers or blaming the manufacturers or blaming the other people on the design team or blaming this. But whatever the fuck you're making or whether it's a, a, an album you just put out that just everybody hates it. What did I do wrong? Don't don't bullshit. What 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 do I need to do different? And for a lot of people, that is an uncomfortable moment that they don't want to experience. And so if you're a high performer the more you could recognize what you've actually done wrong and course correct and not just be, if you're like a CEO of a company, you've got so many people kissing your ass. It's like your ego's got to be inflated. It's going to mm. be so hard to see the forest for the trees. Just like being a movie star on a set. You know, everybody loves you. Here's your bagel. Yep. Mr. Williamson, can I get you anything? It's, it's you, you, you get a, a delusional perspective. So. It's like amongst those people, how many of them can keep their humanity? How many of them can actually just be a human? And, and then your metrics, like how many of them are happy? 
How many of these? If you can be a guy who's like a super high performer and also be happy, the I don't know how happy Elon is, but I know he laughs a lot. Like I've been around that dude a lot, and he's always laughing about shit. He's always laughing about shit. He's clearly under an extreme amount of pressure. He's clearly a high performer, but he's also he seems to be enjoying a lot of it. Did you see his interview recently with Lex? I think it was maybe four months ago. No, I didn't. So on that, there's a really interesting point where. Lex is asking him basically what it's like to be Elon. Yeah. And Elon says, most people think they would want to be me, but they, they do not want to be me. My mind is a storm. They don't know. They don't understand. He said that to me too. Yeah. It's po- fucking like yeah. apocalyptic and, 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 and terrifying. We spoke about this last time, uh, Tiger Woods, the price that people pay yeah. to be the person that you admire. Right. And, you know, Tiger Woods goes through this really difficult period with his father and all the rest of it. And, this is the best remedy for envy that I can think of. Because people look at Elon as this dude who's sending rockets to Mars and he's making the coolest cars on the planet and he's on stage in Japan or China or whatever doing weird robot dances and shit and he's super rich. And you go, you don't know the price that he's had to pay for that. You don't know the internal texture of someone's mind. Uh, Your heroes aren't gods. They're just regular people who probably got good at one thing by sacrificing literally everything else. Mm, Yeah. Especially as a high-performing athlete, like, what what are your options? Like, if you if you want to be a a fighter in the UFC, you can't also be coding. Like you, you can't, you can't also be working at Microsoft. Like there's but can not. Can you also, can you also have a functioning relationship? Can you also be, a, you know, a... the thing about fighters is you do have a lot of downtime where you have to recover. You train a lot during the day, but if you make a living fighting, you will be able to have a relationship. And with some of them, that relationship offers them a significant amount of uh, emotional reinforcement. Parasympathetic activation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives them comfort. It makes them feel normal. Like Some guys separate from their families for, for camp because they just want to be animals. They just want to sleep in a fucking hotel room and just get up and train every day like a soldier. They just want their, – their mind is on one thing, the six-week-from-now event. Yep. And until then, I don't want to hear shit. When Marvin Hagler's kid was born, he didn't go to the hospital. He wasn't at the hospital. He was in camp. Yeah, Marvin Hagler would go off to uh, Provincetown, just down the Cape, and he would run. He would run in the fucking winter on the sand. There's that famous Darren Till interview where he's saying, I've got a two-year-old daughter, don't care. All I care about is legacy and greatness. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a high price that people pay. I mean... Sean Strickland, who continues to seem to, he seems to be sparring like any YouTuber or streamer that's prepared to get into the ring with him. Well, he beat up that kid who's a, a, a smaller than him streamer named Sneeko, which is not a good look. Um, he beat the shit out of that guy. Yeah. It's, I just don't know why he wanted to do that. It's, it's, it's so easy for him to beat that guy up. Well, it was fair. what we were talking about before. Yeah, it's not fair. It's just all, it's like, it's not really, there were, I mean, the kid, I don't know what that kid thought. First of all, he's so silly for doing that, for agreeing to do that with Sean Strickland. Like, because look, you know that he's never going to have that hold back. If you agree to do that with Israel Adesanya, it is, Israel Adesanya will take care of you. I swear to God. He'll, <laughs> he'll, he'll pop you a little bit and let you know that you're helpless. He, but he won't fuck you up. 
he'll smile and laugh and he'll hug you afterwards. You could spar with him. I guarantee you could spar with him. And then just touch your face just to let you know. Like, you would have been knocked out, but I just touched your face. Just going to touch you a little bit. Move around. You can't touch me. I touch you. Here's a faint, and then that's coming at you. <laughs> and if he's not, if he's kicking, you're fucked. But even if he's just using his hands, if you're some, like some streamer, he wouldn't hurt you. But Sean Strickland's a different animal. Sean Strickland has, you know, he's got this fucking man code, and he, he believes yep. in it. Like, you got to get your ass kicked every now and then. And he spars all the time, spars constantly. And if you agree to get in there with him, you're essentially agreeing to l- let him beat the fuck out of you because you don't really have a chance. Like, you have no chance. But in Sean's defense, when he lost to Alex Pajeda, one of the first things he did was go to Connecticut to Glover Teixeira's gym where Alex trains and train with him. When he was training with Alex Pajeda, he was light sparring. So this is fucking light. Watch, find the video of Sean Strickland training with Alex Pajeda because he's smart. Because you can't, that guy's not Sneeko. You can't just tool off. That guy already knocked you out. Like, Pajeda knocked him out in the first round. He hit him with a left hook and then a right hand as he was going down. Like, Pajeda's a monster. So he was with sparring with this monster. He's like, yeah, let's just fucking be friends. <laughs> let's just be friends, buddy. <laughs> there wasn't any of that Teach sneak me your cheat codes. Exactly. Well, he's, he, and Pajeda teaches people, which is very interesting. You know, he's that confident in his ability that he'll take a guy that he just fought and a guy who is now the current. Look, look how they're sparring. Nice and light. See this? They're just touching each other, just using distance and sparring. And uh, there was an actual – see, these guys are sparring, but they're not hitting each other hard at all. And um, there was a very interesting video that I just watched yesterday where this guy was talking about that in martial arts. I don't know if you'll be able to find it. But you know what? I guarantee you it's on my um, my list of shit that I just watched because YouTube will give you a list of shit you, don't, you just oh, the watched. the history? Yeah, which is nice. Um, but it was very interesting because it was talking about the importance of play when it comes to martial arts sparring in that sparring, you know, the, the only way to learn is to not be under this intense, high pressure, high stress situation. And for most people, sparring is terrifying, especially sparring if you're sparring someone who's like really dangerous. This yes, yes, this is that guy. It's a long video, though. Yes. And Max Holloway talked about it, how he doesn't spar and CJ. But if you, what he's essentially saying is he, he, he breaks down the mind and how, wh- where, where is your optimal time to learn? And he talks about how animals play mm-hmm. and about young animals, like when a lion is jumping on another lion, they're learning Rough to play. Rough and tumble play. And the ties, he also breaks down how the ties uh, spar. Ties spar very light. They just touch each other. They're just touching each other. I've been out to Thailand. I've seen it. It's yeah. amazing. Yep. And, and uh, high-level guys do that. Um, and they they do that so they can fight all the time because they fight almost every week Weekend. sometimes. Yep. So when they're training, they can't be getting beat up all the time. So they learn how to – and, you know, that's uh, Faraz Zahabi actually talking about that. On my, and that guy this was fascinating. Faraz was, Faraz was a genius. He's one of the greatest martial arts trainers of all time, if not the best. Um, but, but, so. So, see, these guys, are they're training and they're touching. See, they just touch each other. Hmm. And when you do that, you, you don't have the fear of getting hit back as much and you learn combinations better. You learn timing better. When I first started uh, coming to California, I started training at this place called the Jet Center. 
was Benny the Jet Urquidez, who's this world famous kickboxer. And he had this place in California that we, it was like two places I wanted to go to when I came to California. One was a comedy store and one was the Jet Center. And unfortunately, they had just been damaged. They had the roof damaged from an earthquake. And so they had like flooding problems and stuff and they had to move out of that location. So I was only there for like a short period of time before they went under. Um, but there was guys you could spar there that were like really good kickboxers, but they were also, they knew how to spar correctly. So there was this one dude that I used to spar with all the time, and I was getting so sharp because we never hit each other hard. Yep. And I, I knew I could trust him, and he knew he could trust me. So we were sparring all the time, and I was not getting fucked up. Like, I'd spar on a day that I had to film something. Yeah. Because I knew that. You'd be able to still go to work without a bloody nose or a black eye. So I did all my hard work on, like, the heavy bag, but then when I was sparring, uh, everything is just movement. What is the, or what are the bad habits that someone who does that too much can, would you maybe begin to habituate pulling your punches, not telegraphing sufficiently? No, you would never, you would never, if you've fought before, you'll never pull your punches. That's But you know what I mean? Because you're, obviously you are dialing back that power, that penetration. You could say that with point karate, because point karate, they kind of dive in and just touch each other, but they all know how to hit bags. They all know how to hit mitts. They all know how to hit tie pads. They all know how to do that. They know how to hit things. It's just, the real skill level is in control. The real skill level is in be able to counter quickly, but know exactly where your hand is going. And you can do that. You can learn how to control force in a way that, like, when I used to do uh, Taekwondo demonstrations, like when we'd open up a new school, one of the things you'd have to do is, like, throw kicks at people's faces. Like, stop it at their face just to show them, like, the kind of control that's possible. And you would have your foot like literally fly up like right in front of someone's face. And you would have someone stand there who's uh, another student. You would demonstrate on them. You just got to stand there and not flinch. Yep. And you just stand there. And my instructor used to do it to me all the time. He would do it to someone in every class. Like in the front row, he would demonstrate by stopping the kick in the air in front of your face. Fuck, that's cool. Yeah. And so you would learn how to do that when you would do that. in like t- So they, the ability to pull a shot is a part of being a really high-level martial artist. And the ability to spar without and spar fast without hitting each other hard mm. is also, it's like something you should know how to do. It's a part of the, but once you know that you're hitting, the only thing is like the anxiety of being hit. That's in the, the danger of being hit. Because if you're just used to like pulling shots, you could get an uncomfortable sense of your, like a dangerous sense of, of your, your robustness. safety. Yes. Your robustness yes. and yes. your safety. Because any one shot takes you out. Any one good shot from a strong striker can take you out. So you're not, you, don't, you want no shots landing clean. You want everything to be moving away That's, from you. And, th- this is new though, right? I've heard a lot of guys, older school UFC guys, saying that this light sparring thing is mm-hmm. a pretty new invention totally people were getting knocked out in sparring all the time all the time yeah some of the old school training camps like you'd hear stories about like particularly shoot the box in brazil in curitiba they had some of the best fighters of the golden era of pride they had vanderlei silva they had uh ninja shogun anderson silva they had so many killers that came out as one gym and bro they beat the fuck out of each other (laughs) they beat the fuck out of each other they knocked each other out all the time Vanderlei Silva and uh, Shogun famously had a, a fight to see whether or not one of them would pay for a pit bull 
because one of them had the pit bull. I think Shogun had the pit bull, and he's offered to sell it to Vandalay, and Vandalay said, I'll fight you for it. And so they fought, and, and, and Vandalay apparently won and got the dog. <laughs> Just in the gym. <laughs> this isn't. Fight. There's, no one's getting paid apart no. from in a dog. No, they would fight, fight, like fight, fight. So when they would go to fights, they're so used to fighting. I'd fight over Carl. The thing about it is, though, man, it's going to shorten your career substantially, substantially. It'll shorten your durability towards the end of your career substantially. You see it in every fighter that comes from that sort of environment. And the traumatic brain injuries that they get when they spar like that all the time, especially when they're not slick. The thing about like Anderson Silva above all those guys is that Anderson was slick. He was very difficult to hit clean. So Anderson Silva, when he's sparring, like he's flowing and moving, you know, he's very difficult to catch. Those guys would go to war, just bite on the mouthpiece and fucking rah. Do you ever see Vanderlei Silva fight? Uh, yeah, I think so. His nickname is the Axe Murderer. Vanderlei Silva the, was, was that Brazil? the guy? Let's go now. Let's go now. Yeah, was that yeah, him he with Chael? Chael Sonnen. But that was at the end of his career. That was at the end of his career when he came to the UFC. Post TRT. He'd, yeah, he'd gotten off of all the stuff that he was on when he was in Brazil. You want, you want fully roided Vandalay in Brazil <laughs> when he was a young man. He was a fucking animal, dude. He was an animal. He, he was so scary. He was, this was the bare knuckle days. This was like his first fight. Bare knuckle's coming back. Yeah, it is coming back. Well, bare knuckle oh. for UFC was how they first started. Oh. Yeah, look, Vandalay was, and he had a cool tattoo, a tattoo on the back the... of his head. <laughs> oh he was an animal, dude. He was an animal. I, I saw him meet a fan. I saw him meet a fan once, and the guy had the same tattoo in his head. He was oh, such you can a do head kicks on the ground. Oh, yeah, everything. You do whatever you want. In little briefs as this well. I love the briefs. Tudo. This is in Brazil. This is where it all started, man. This uh, is how they did it in Brazil, man. In Brazil, bare knuckle, Valley Tudo. It's just when the United States got involved that it became the, the thing that it is now. With it the up. gloves. Yeah. I mean, they were stomping and kicking yeah. each other in the balls. This is Vandalay when he got to the UFC. So in these days, this was the UFC with zero testing. Oh and you gosh. see him, he looks fucking shredded. And then, I mean, Vandalay was a terrifying force. And then he goes over to Pride, and he becomes a champion of Pride. But he was fucking people. And there's him against Guy Metzger, who was a very good fighter. And Vandalay just overwhelmed him. Oh, my him. God. Bro, overwhelmed him. It's just headbutts, everything. Knees. See that headbutt? I don't think that headbutt was legal, by the way. <laughs> I don't think that was legal back then, but it didn't matter. They weren't going to stop it, and then Vanderlei oh puts him away. God. I wanted to... Uh... Monster, dude. He was a monster in his prime. He had to get his face reconstructed because his nose was so flat that he couldn't breathe out of it at all. So they took a big chunk of cartilage out of his rib and reconstructed his face, and he Here's had a totally new, new face. Made a total... of... They made it big. He, he got a big nose so he could really breathe. Yeah, he looked like a different human. Like after the surgery, he looked like a t like he showed up one day, and I was like, "What is going on?" I was like, I've "We're got at the way." My face. I knew that he had got a, his nose fixed, but they they just fix they made, gave him a different nose. Like it's way bigger, so he could breathe more. He was beating the fuck out of people. He wanted more air. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Vandalay yeah, was an animal. Who do you think's more? Is there anyone else that was more? psychopathic or more of an animal across your commentary career there's so many of them who there's ranks so who many. ranks close to the top mike perry who's one of the bare knuckle fighters now he's, yes yes he's yes, yes about as ferocious as a human being gets he's the dude that chipped luke rockhold's tooth yeah right yeah and he yeah. told him what was going to happen before the fight he's gonna i'm gonna fuck you up and you're gonna quit and he just went out and made, made him quit did exactly what he said he's an animal man he's a real animal
This BKFC thing's interesting. Yeah, well, it's a very different kind of fighting, man, when you don't have the protection of gloves. You know, every punch hurts way more. And it is also the, uh, hurts your hands. Is the wrapping on their wrists just to provide a little bit of support structurally when they're hitting? Yes. Yeah, structurally, it'll probably prevent some uh, breaks. That's basically all it does is prevent some breaks. It connects your thumb to the hands, too, because the thumb breaks easy. Mm. The thumb, like on a missed punch, you might hit a forehead with the thumb, and the thumb will snap. So it'll protect it a little bit. Oh. See, Luke cracked him there with a good left hand. And Luke was a fucking hell of a fighter in his prime, man. He was UFC middleweight champion, and in his prime, when he beat Chris Weidman, he was a motherfucker, man. He was a motherfucker. But Mike Perry is oh. not a guy that you can think you have. He's just so tough. He's going to keep coming. Yeah. And if Luke st- stuck and moved and maybe had a different strategy, maybe he would have had a, a better time. But you let Mike Perry start mauling you, he's so dangerous, man. He's such a fucking killer. And he doesn't feel pain. Or if he does, he doesn't let you know. <laughs> It's just he's a, he's just uniquely built for that sport. Yeah, I uh, I wanted to teach you about something that I'd learned on the show. So you've had a number of conversations about trans athletes in sport and about the dangers yeah. potentially of of biological males moving over into women's leagues, and it always kind of comes back to the same, well, if we can get the hormones down to this particular kind of level, mm-hmm. basically, can we reverse some of the structural changes? And it kind of gets into this realm of like hormonal fuckery, mm-hmm. which is fine. But I think that's kind of been talked to death. There's something that I learned about on the show that I thought was even more important. So the male and female brain difference can be detected in utero in embryos and fetuses that are six months old so this is a minus three months year old and they can already detect sexed brain differences by the age of 10 93 percent accuracy of an mri between a boy and a girl that's exactly or that's around about the same as your accuracy of detecting whether it's a man or a woman based on looking at their face that's the same degree of difference. So one of the arguments that would be put forward is uh, social roles theory. So social roles theory is that boys behave like boys because they see boys behaving like boys and girls do the same. They're socially, uh, they're socialized into doing this. That doesn't seem to be true because this is universal. It's across the board. It's present before anybody's even been born and it's present before androgens. But the reason that this is, I think, important towards sport is that one of the key differences is in what's called visuospatial abilities. And males have a huge advantage in visuospatial abilities. This is preschoolers, age three and four, their throwing accuracy and their throwing distance already begins to diverge from girls. And by the age of 19, there's essentially no crossover at all. You could understand why this might be the case because, well, if you're an ancestral hunter, you need to, as a man, be able to see this is an animal running this way. I have this particular spear in my hand. I'm going to throw it to intersect this. So you go, okay, well, one of the problems of using that is you can't bifurcate a male's performance, especially with something like throwing, visuospatial, from the uh, physical structure that they have, which is impacted by androgens. So uh, men have longer forearms. Their shoulders articulate in a different way. They might have more trunk rotation, perhaps. So (laughs) they did a study to try and work this out. Instead of having them throw things, the lecturers at this university brought their undergrads in and used a tennis ball firing machine, like you use for uh, practicing returns in tennis, as dodgeball. 
And the guys in the class topped out the ceiling. They were very, very difficult to hit. The same wasn't true for the girls. The reason is that the male proclivity to be able to see things in space, understand how they fit together, understand the proprioception of where my body is and how I can interact with this is very, very different. It's a a sizable, statistically significant difference that you find between males and females. Now, females have their own advantages. Social cognition, which is otherwise known as emotional intelligence, reading faces, lying detection, uh, what's called like, I think it's uh, local memorization or spatial memorization. So you know those games where you've got a load of cards down on the table and you've got to match them. Girls would wipe the floor with guys at Mm. that. So there are uh, predispositions mentally that men and women have and this is something this is not and this is the important thing this is not impacted by testosterone level so you as a biological male can't take a ton of estrogen or hormone blockers and have your visual spatial ability be down regulated to that of a woman so this to me explains an awful lot about why the WNBA is struggling because you are talking about a very different set of capacities and unfortunately, well, fortunately, I guess, the way that sports are done is it needs to be visually compelling, right? You want to see cool things happening. You mm. want to observe shit going on. A lying detection test or someone turning over cards and matching them doesn't lend itself to being a spectator sport as much, which means that males have this predisposition, which is more entertaining given the current rule sets of sport. And this, to me, is a much more compelling unfairness when you're talking about male and female capabilities within sport this doesn't have anything to do with what time were they put on hormone blockers this doesn't have anything to do with how what is their testosterone level at this is innate inbuilt predispositions but doesn't it have to be agreed upon by the people that are making these sort of decisions because most people there's people that will resist that they might not they might even think they, they might not think you're lying but they might resist that they might resist that and say it's not valid doesn't statistically matter statistically significant I mean, it, it, right, but you, know, you could you could see how people would have an issue with that, right? Even though it's statistically significant, people would go like, "Who did the study?" You know, if you're trying to like say that trans women are women, there's there's a lot of things that you could say that they have an advantage with physically. The men- proving it mentally, just based on that. I agree. It seems an issue. Well, you know how big of it's an issue? It's an issue in pool. Pool's not a strength game at all. Mm-hmm. It's a finesse game. It's a it's a game of, uh, you know, executing shots under pressure. It's a game of angles, and it's a game of geometry and feel. But uh, very few women ever get to the level of, like, an elite professional male. It's like a, there's a small handful in history. In history. And that's completely controlled for articulation of the shoulder, strength. Yeah, maybe it's a so, tiny bit of strength on the break, I guess. Could but. be on the break. But there's a lot of girls who break very well. And the break today is more of a controlled break because they're breaking on cloth that's uh, Simonis 860. It's a very fast, clean cloth. Dude, your obsession, your obsession with pool makes me laugh every time that I hear about <laughs> it. It's so funny. It's like this other wing of you yeah. that's... I never think about it. and then every time I walk in and I see that there's like a, a pool hall basically in here I'm like ah yeah the fucking pool obsession yeah I'm obsessed with it but there's women that are really good they're better than me for sure but they never reach the level of like a Shane Van Boning who's like one of the best ever they just don't get to that place I just think it's an interesting 
addition to the discussion because you're you're always having the same conversation. Well, what about if we get the hormone levels to here? Well, right. actually, we don't suggest that testosterone. Are, but what about people that have got naturally high levels of testosterone? Da, 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 yeah. Da, da. yeah. <clears throat> it never gets to innate, inbuilt, unchangeable differences about our capacities, about when it comes to the field of play. Mm-hmm. And if you were to take, you know, the top hundred female WNBA players and the top hundred male NBA players, and you were to say, let's just shoot three uh, free throws. Right. Let's just see how many are made. The, that should be a pretty even playing field, and I bet that it would be, the disparity will be very high. Very high. Um, in the pool world, this the reason why I was bringing this up, recently a woman made it to the finals of a tournament with a transgender woman and just quit. She said, I'm not going to play you. In pool? Yeah. They got to a women's tournament, and the this transgender woman, and about, by the way, with pool tournaments, I guarantee you they're not like checking estrogen levels. <laughs> There's zero control. All you have to do is say I'm a woman, and you could play. I could say I'm a woman, and yeah. I could play. Put on a dress, and I'll play. Fuck you, I'm a woman. And if you let it happen, you're going to get crazy people that do this. And this lady, uh, she took a stand. She's like, you're not a woman. I, I quit. You saw that. Check ca- your hand. You saw that Canadian powerlifting coach that just entered a, a competition yeah. with the beer, with like just didn't do it. He was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a woman now. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's really bizarre that they're letting this happen. It really is. It's so strange. It's like women's rights have gone out the window, in the in in this sense, over the name of virtue, the virtue that you're you're a good person and you say trans women are women. Okay, in real life maybe, yeah, but not on sports. You're a biological male. Like it's the same thing as if you, if you tell someone, "Hey, I don't do steroids now, but I've done steroids straight every day for 20 years, and I'm so fucking strong, I can run through a wall." But I'm going to stop doing steroids, and I want to compete with natural people. <laughs> well, fuck you, fuck you. You cheated. You changed your physique. You changed it. Well, that's exactly what you would say for a woman. If you had a woman athlete, and that woman athlete developed a male voice and giant muscles, but was still a woman, was beating up all these women, you'd be like, oh, that woman was on the sauce. She cheated. She cheated. Well, if you're going through puberty, guess what, fuckface? You're taking testosterone. If you're, you really say you're a woman and you're going through all that, and then you're after puberty, you're an adult, and then you're going into your 30s, you have your whole life of producing testosterone, you have male tendon strength. You have the male bone density of different shaped hips. You have everything's different. Your competitive drive's different. It's so dumb that we're having this conversation. And the people that suffer are the biological women. And that was the thing that we were always supposed to be protecting with Title IX. That's the, the whole idea of d- developing regulations so that women have sports that they can play that are just with women. It's a fair playing field. The same reason why you don't let third graders play with fucking high school seniors. It's real simple. You, you have someone play within the parameters of a fair playing environment, and you're always going to get outliers. You're always going to get people that are like exceptionally strong and fast for their weight and their age, and then you're going to be at people that are struggling physically. They just have no experience whatsoever in athletics, and you got to find the comfortable medium, but it's within a fair parameter of the biological gender, this fucking thing that's on your birth certificate. What is it? That's what you can compete in. Whatever the fuck you had. What's your chromosomes? Do you have XY? Yeah, you got to go with those guys. That's it. You don't want to fight anymore? Okay, well, then don't fight. But you can't beat up women just because you decide you're a woman. That's crazy. 
That's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense that we're allowing that. It doesn't. It's not compassionate. It's not open-minded. It's not progressive. It's just stupid. You're just caught in some cult-like mindset. And the people that are suffering are the women, the women that would be competing in just sports. You see that thing in Canada where the volleyball players is five biological males on a volleyball team, and the the biological women were sitting there on the bench waiting while the biological males were dominating this fucking woman's volleyball game. See if you can find that because it's so crazy. It's like we it's literally South Park. It's South Park. Like we're watching strong woman. Yeah, it's it's absolute insanity. You have crazy people. Crazy people. Talking about basketball, I had Seth Stevens Davidowitz on the show. He's a, a ex Google data scientist. He wrote a book in 30 days using AI, breaking down a ton of stuff that no one ever knew about basketball. And it is so fucking cool. For every inch in height that you gain, the chance of you going to the NBA doubles. Whoa. So six foot one is twice as likely as six foot, and six foot two is twice as likely as six one, and it just continues to go. Whoa. Continues to go all the way up. The most common name. Oh, here we go. Oh, no, wait, sorry. Go ahead. Get it in there. Most common name. Five trans players dominate women's college volleyball game. <laughs> Come on, this is so crazy. How many players Watch is there play. on a game of well, they're volleyball? They're on different teams. There's yeah, there's three like on three on one and two on the other. Okay. And they played during the entire game while the biological women sat on the bench. Let's see if I can pick them out. Oh God! This is a this is a real oh. So people were freaking out. I guess yeah. Yeah. Well, they should be freaking out. It's fucking insanity. It's insanity, and it's this thing where you're supposed to pretend that they're not lunatics. Like there was a man in Canada that was a 50 year old man that decided he was he identified as a 15 year old girl. So he's competing in girls swimming events, and he was changing in the same locker room as the girls. Hey. What are the odds that guy's a creep? <laughs> Might be one to put on the watch list for the fucking, police, I think. What are you talking about? It's so dumb. It's just so dumb that we're accepting it. And more people are accepting it than should. It's it's insane. And it, it shouldn't be a sign of whether or not you're progressive. or you, you should recognize that this is a dangerous opening. You're leaving a very dangerous opening here. And the people that are suffering are the women. And the women that are athletes that are suffering, it's going to ruin their chances at college. It could change the direction of their life. They might not get a scholarship they should get because they had to compete against biological males. The enhanced games. Get everybody off to the enhanced games. The steroid yeah. Olympics. Peter Thiel just put a ton of money into that. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. How long before the government cracks down on them? Well, the problem is, I, I, it seems like, from what I read, the, <laughs> it seems like they supply the steroids. That's what I'm saying. Like that like, seems hang on. Are super you a, illegal. Are you, are you a sporting body? Or are you my steroid dealer? And then you have to think like what kind of an influence does that have on young people? Like one of the yeah. things about steroids being shunned and illegal, even if it was irrational in some sense, like that if you have an adult male and uh, this guy is 35 years old and he just decides, you know what? I want to take steroids. Why – is that not okay? But you can prescribe him a ton of different fucking things that can kill him. You can prescribe him anti-anxiety medication. You can prescribe him painkillers. You can prescribe him Ozempic because he wants to lose weight. You can prescribe him all kinds of things that might have adverse health risks. But you can't – nothing that makes you stronger. Nothing, we, we have a limitation on that. It's very odd. And I can see how you would make it banned for sports. But why is it banned for people? Like, says who? I just want to get jacked. 
says who, but it's it's like says who says one adult says another adult can't do this. It's like a bunch of do we does, do people vote on that? Did medical experts vote on that? If they did, how'd they let fentanyl in? I you can't know, like, I can't remember. I I feel like it wouldn't be surprising to me if the cascade was this ruins fairness in sports, and then we retroactively change the gym rat normal population rule set to ensure that the sporting rule set isn't wrecked. Mm. I feel like it was probably the trickle down that way from sports and elite sports and tested sports mm-hmm. into the public. But uh, Derek from More Plates, More Dates has talked about this, how if it hadn't been for the fact that there were controlled substances, we would have way safer, uh, b- better researched compounds. You know, we're still using mm-hmm. like Trenbolone is I, I, it's from like the 60s or the 70s or something. And it's that got, stuff's supposed to be scary. Oh, yeah. I've heard scary stories of people being on Me that too. stuff and losing their fucking mind. Like they literally, insomnia, you get this animals. cough. You get a, you put you, it's a trend cough. Trend cough. Yeah, you pin, pin yourself and you get this trend cough. Supposedly, mm, terrifying. I, going back to that basketball thing, uh, the most common name of basketball players in the NBA, Christopher. I missed my calling. Damn. The that's reason. The most? Yes. So the reason for this is really interesting. Seth used a ton of different AI programs to analyze all of this data. And he said he was able to do what would have taken him three years and 30 days. He wrote this book in 30 days. Whoa. It's insane. It's really, really good. Uh, Who Makes the NBA, I think it's called. And um, (laughs) the reason that it's Christopher is that Christopher is the sort of name that is given by middle-class parents to their child. So it's really an indicator of social class. And there is this belief that in basketball, it's a meritocracy where the underclass, hardworking athlete can clamber his way up. You know, this is LeBron. LeBron, single mother who is 16 years old, mm-hmm. makes it to the top. He's an outlier. That's not that common. The most common path is someone that comes from two-parent household that's relatively well off and, you know, like classic advantages that you get. Christopher is the sort of name... That's given. I think Michael is another one that's up there, and he does this big word map thing where you can see the size of the names, and the bigger the name, the more likely it is. Yeah. One of the other things that no one really ever thinks about is hand span. Hand span, one of the biggest determinants for success in the sport. So Shaq has a 14-inch hand span from <sighs> finger to hand because palming Good the Lord. ball. You know, if you're up there, yeah, and you're able to palm the ball, that's a huge advantage. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrifying. That's so big. It's absolutely terrifying. Just grab that ball. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. It'll give you an advantage. Yeah. It's a, it's fascinating when you break down data like that and you try to figure out what are the contributing factors. I wonder if they've done that with martial arts. I wonder if someone's done that with fighters like height and reach and things what like that. What would you be interested in? Height and reach. It's a big factor. You, but it's also like, are you as durable? Like sometimes the stockier, neck width, maybe something yeah, like that. Yeah, neck width, um, the size of the chin. I think it's jaw size. Hand size would definitely be one. So I worked on the front door of nightclubs for forever, running our events. And uh, one of the really naughty things that door staff would do, maybe they do this in the in America as well, is they get uh, like a lead cylinder, and in their leather gloves they put it on the inside. Yeah. So it, the hand now weighs a pound and a half more mm-hmm. than usual. You hit someone, yeah. and that's like a fucking hammer. Yeah. Um, so if that's the case, that rule is mass of hand equals damage. So someone that has denser bones or more muscular hands or bigger hands, that's basically just more weight mm-hmm. on the end of your arms that you're swinging at someone's face. 
so yeah, I mean, giant advantage. I think that breaking down sports in this way. That's why Moneyball was so cool, right? People loved like, oh my god, this is this is so interesting. Because I never really paid attention to that. What is Moneyball? So Moneyball was a assessment of the MLB done by a guy that was picked up by the Oakland A's, and he was using very advanced mathematics to look at to look at. Uh, you got something, Jimmy? I was just saying Billy Beans' name. I was trying to just yeah, Billy Beans, and um, he looked at undervalued players and what contributes to winning a game and there were players that would bat in a weird way that would throw or pitch in a weird way but their numbers were fantastic and he was the first guy that really really assessed the numbers of baseball in this manner now it's very very common baseball is largely a game of maths they know exactly where hitters like to swing they move the field around based on all of the statistics that they've seen all of the analyses that's been done but yeah, the movie Moneyball with Brad Pitt is outstanding. If you've never mm. seen it, you absolutely should watch it. It's so much fun. But yeah, I think this assessment, I don't think it removes the magic of sport. I don't think it gets rid of the magic of sport to It just makes people nerd out harder. Deconstruct, yeah, and it yeah. allows us to obsess. It still doesn't make it easy to do. So when someone does hit a fucking home run, it's still amazing. Yeah, Even but- this is a good scene from the movie. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but just what's going on here is he's explaining to them like the idea of what he was just talking about, the money ball, but there's a bunch of old scouts. These guys have been around for the whole, forever. Hear. And they're just like, what are you talking about? We don't, we can't do it that way. Nope. That kind of, that's about really, it kind of talks about So he just figures it out numerically. And spoiler alert is it works. They won the World Series like the next year or something like that. Mm. Yeah. And it's based on a true story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's I and so he had himself uh, an autistic kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's exactly what. <laughs> that's, that's, that's exactly basically what he it was. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the secret advantage. Find people that have got autism. There's an advantage in that. I just heard the, the guy that the Chiefs that just won the Super Bowl. They have a guy like that that's worked with the coach the entire time. They call him shit. I forget what they call him. He has a name. He's like the analytics guy. They're like right, no okay. one knows what his job Mr. is. Mister like, Mister Numbers or something. We just listen to him and we trust whatever he says. Fuck, that's cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Dude, let's talk about this this special counsel report thing. That just oh yes, came out. that we were going to do that before we peed. Yes, yeah, yeah. Special counsel report on Biden. Yeah. So these Afghanistan documents, these top secret Afghanistan documents that were supposedly held in his garage, as you'd say. Uh, there's photos of how it was. It was just an open box in the middle of the garage. This wasn't, wasn't it in his Corvette or something. Uh, I'm not sure. The photos that I've seen are just an open box with like files in, like you just have lying around here that need to okay. be cleaned away. I think he had one of those boxes in the back seat of his Corvette. Well, <laughs> or in the yep, there it is. Corvette. Yeah, there's his Corvette. Well, oh, that's a Corvette that doesn't even have a back seat. The Corvette, I guess. Yeah. The so Corvette's he's got an. That's a there. fucking dope Corvette. That's like my year. I love that year. That's pretty nice. So the classified docs were found in his garage, where his Corvette was. So yeah. There's the there's the box right there. That's it. Yeah. Just so the and main, what's in those things? I, classified Afghanistan documents. Uh, I think it was from earlier. Oh my in, god! You can read them. Garage box after repacking repackaging January third, twenty twenty three. So did he forget he had them? So that's the argument, and the thing that most people are jumping on to do with this report isn't that. It's the assessment that I think it was her that's the dude that did it. It was the assessment of his mental state. Yeah. Basically, yeah, 
Mr. Hurst suggested that Mr. Biden's memory was failing and questioned some of his actions, even though the special counsel had found no basis to prosecute the president. The issue that he says, basically, in the report is, if you tried to prosecute this guy, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to the jury as he did during our interview with him, which is as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory. That's literally what it says yeah. in the report. Yeah. Well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. So basically, you can't prosecute this guy because he's not compass mentis, but you can let him run for the president of the United States yeah. in November. So that's the that's the world that we've managed to get into. But and don't don't you think that that's a ruse? What that you mean? him running for president? I think You don't the, think he's going to run? No. No, I think they're going to get rid of him. I think they're going to move him out. They're going to force him to step down. That's what I think. If I had a guess, and it's just speculation, I'd say they're setting up Gavin Newsom for it. That's what I say. That's what I think. That's what it looks like to me. I think they, they, more, more and more comes out about this stuff, and more and more comes out about the Burisma thing and the Penn State thing, You know, the, where the Chinese donated money to Penn State, and then he got a million-dollar-a-year gig where he didn't even have to show up. <laughs> That's old school. That's like mafia stuff. Was it a million dollars a year? How much was it that he got from Penn State? And he, he was telling people, he's like, oh, I'm a professor at Penn State. Didn't teach one class. Look, it's, some of it is part of it's fun. Like if he wasn't the president, it would be really fun because he's like always oh, making stuff up. He calls people the wrong name. Talks talks about someone that's dead. You know, it's just there's a, it's constant. It was Penn, not Penn State. Not Penn State. Excuse me, Penn. Yeah. Uh, was paid $1 million a year to teach but never taught a single class. Yeah, University of Pennsylvania, that's what it is. Um, that is a, that's a mob job. You know, I, I had a friend of mine who had one of those jobs. He didn't have to really go to the Javits Center. <laughs> like, like an honorary he, he thing. Got a, he was a mob guy. He got a gig. The, yeah, he got a gig. And there was like, if you had made a, a union negotiation back in the day, like we're talking back in the day day, they would throw in a bunch of no work jobs. So no work jobs were part of the thing. It's just a little sweetener on top. Yeah. So if you're a, a mob guy and you're connected to some construction company, they would they would find companies that they would buy into and own pieces of so that they could kind of funnel their money out. They could say, oh, I'm in the construction business or I'm in the sanitation business. They always had something that they were attached to. But they had no no show jobs. You got real money. You know? You got a real fucking salary, a real paycheck every week. And you never did shit. You didn't do a goddamn thing. You never went there. You're just a mob guy. I can't help feeling kind of sad about how difficult it must be to be Joe Biden. Like, if you're this dude who is, I mean, what the fuck are they pumping him with? Like, he is- Fun stuff. I mean, he's having a great time. <laughs> at, at, like, first thing in the morning, Mr. President, come in for your happy pills or whatever. Yeah, exactly. fucking IV testosterone and for cocaine what? right into his system. So you think, you know, this guy who's holding on as best he can, like trying to get yeah. through the presidency and there's all of this scrutiny and people are making jokes about him and he's got the fucking red, his team are like, oh, let's put a fucking meme out of him with red eyes after the Super Bowl and then he's got to deal with all the rest of that stuff. What is that? And then it just makes me feel like, fuck, like that must be really rough to be that guy, to actually be the human that is Joe Biden. That must be really fucking like... I don't know. You're going to be aware. You're going to be self-aware of the fact that you're failing, that your mental faculties aren't there. And you're like being pushed and just this RPM is being pushed higher and higher. 8,000, 9,000, 10,000. I bet he doesn't do much. 
I bet the cabinet takes care of everything. I bet the press secretary makes all the tweets. I bet they dope them up. They every now and then they make them talk, and they probably give them a lot of amphetamines or something. They probably give them something to make. I don't know. It's offensive. It's amphetamines. I would imagine if I was that's if you I was using your do, Hitler what I would Hitler do. model yeah, to what, what I was going to do if I if I had a guy <laughs> like that and they said, hey Joe, like this guy's like he's really out of it. You know, let's pretend it's not Biden. It's some other guy that has to go and speak in front of people. He's really old and, you know, like, okay, he, you know, he could die. He could die if you do this. But uh, what I would say is, like, let's start banging him up with testosterone. Give let's him, go. like, a good dose. Like, ramp him up slowly. But we want to get him up to, like, 30-year-old levels. And then uh, some kind of amphetamine. And then uh, a big nootropic stack, like a heavy stack theanine you know acetylcholine alpha gpc yeah. alpha gpc yeah let's stack shit and i want like multiple modalities i want a bunch of different ones coming out mushroom ones all kinds of stuff you got we got to do our best here the adaptogens but, yeah. we've got everything going in there and then we're just like got to break things down on cue cards i mean we can do this and that's what they've done they've yep. definitely done the cue cards part like there's there's photos of his cue cards like stand there say brief remark like it's all capital letters have you seen those no he holds on to them and then they take pictures of it and they zoom in on the picture and they go look what it says God. See, see if you can find that jamie yeah it's like it's, you can't you shouldn't have like this is his card the secret the presidential cue cards oh he has cue cards for staff too that makes sense but there was a cue card that he had that they were reading while he was on stage where he was giving some sort of a presidential address it was like you enter the roosevelt room yeah. and say hello to participants you take your seat you, you give, give brief, brief comments. comments. All caps with you. Oh, man, I feel so bad for that's, him. That's amazing. I feel so it's bad amazing. For him. Well, he just can't keep a thought in his head when he starts talking about things. He forgets what he's talking about all the time. He goes, well, whatever. He just says, well, whatever, and Ugh. just drifts off. Someone. So he did this after the report came out. He did this emergency press conference, which wasn't, I don't think, a particularly good idea. How did it go? I would say suboptimally. Uh, <laughs> someone said did he fail to impress uh, someone asked him um, how good is your memory and he said my memory is so bad I let you speak oh boy like what oh boy sorry what my memory, was, my memory is so good I let you speak what? what there's no way that I can repurpose that quote for it to make sense no Meanwhile, the oh, no. new president of El Salvador just won with an 85% vote. 85%. So El Salvador went from having the highest murder rate in the world to now the highest incarceration rate in the world. Whoa. This guy is locking up everyone. They have a brand Whoa. new 40,000 person prison that's the size of seven football stadiums. Whoa. Jamie, have a look at this uh this football stadium thing. It is it is wild what they've done. And uh he's just he's cleaned up the streets. He's really he's gone super aggressive. There's some dangers of what he's done, which is they're being very indiscriminate with who gets uh, con sure. convicted. Uh 12-year-olds can be I haven't heard if they are, but 12-year-olds can be treated like adults uh and thrown into the prison as well. You know, if they break down the door and come in this room and you're a bad guy and me and Jamie are not bad guys, we're probably going to prison as well. So there's a, probably a good bit of collateral damage that's mm. come with this. But this dude is like, it's insane. It's insane what he's been able to do. And yeah, 85% was the uh, the vote. Yeah, here we go. 
Wow. Inside El Salvador's mega prison. Turn the volume on, Jamie. You'll find some of El Salvador's most dangerous gang members packed into massive cells, towers of bunk beds, and what looks like bird cages. It's a source of pride for President Nayib Bukele that almost two years ago declared a war on crime. A detention center the size of seven football stadiums with capacity to hold 40,000 prisoners, the largest of its kind in Latin America. Known as the Center for Terrorism Confinement, it opened its doors in 2023 after the government declared a state of emergency. The move limiting civil rights. Look at the tattoos, dude. Look at that. Tens of thousands of gang members. Wow. The director says the detainees have to sleep on hard surfaces to avoid giving them mattresses that could be used to hide objects. Their diet consists of simple meals that repeat every day. Beans, rice, one hard egg in the morning. Wow. Yeah. This guy just put the hammer down. That was, you know, when Duncan Trussell, um, when we were in L.A., when the George Floyd riots hit, one of the first things he says, dude, we're going to have a right-wing authoritarian president now. That's going to be the next person. Like the next, like when this all collapses, the only response to that is people go hard right. They go hard right. Oh, my God. That's nuts. That's nuts. I think it's MS-13 is one of the big gangs. I can't remember what the other one's called. It's just if, like, if you wanted to oh my God. stop this at its tracks, you kind of, you're not going to cure those guys. There's like two bathrooms in each stall or each cell also. And how many oh, people in each cell? People, two bathrooms, two, two oh stalls. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If you got to go, you got to go. But I guess yeah, if you want to really clean it up, you, it's not going to be pretty. No. If you want to really clean up a very dangerous gang-infested place, it's not going to be pretty. You saw Batman. That's what he did, right? Yeah. Recodes like 100, 500 people. Yeah. The, um, the insight around during a time of upheaval and uncertainty, looking for a more dominant leader and more authoritarian leader, that has roots in evolution as well. So this is something that Will Storr talks about, which is there's multiple routes to status. There's a fewer routes to leadership. So there tends to be two, one being dominance and the other being prestige. So dominance is the more authoritarian. You will do this because there are negative outcomes if you don't do this and it's more overbearing. Prestige is uh, earning reputation through being positive some. During times of war and strife, tribes would look for a more dominant leader because you have threat from the outside so you're going to have someone that's going to be aggressive. They're going to lean in. They're going to try and fix this problem. Of course, that's going to be who you choose. Problem is, if you have someone who is a dominant leader for times of war, when it becomes a time of peace, that dominant leader isn't just going to step aside. They're dominant. They're going to hold on to this power. They've usually managed to embed themselves. They've got sycophants. They've got a, a distribution network of people that can help to enforce their rule. That's the problem that you have. But this has absolutely has its roots evolutionarily. Also, what a bizarre way to run anything, to have the guy who runs it be very vulnerable and only have a four-year term 
And then you can only do two of those four-year terms. And then people are constantly trying to figure out a way to manipulate the reality of the world to get their guy past you, including high-level gaslighting. I mean, we've seen some wild gaslighting. Serious just fuckery. Past, past couple of weeks talking about the economy. There's so I much that. What was that? gaslighting. Well, well, one of them was Gavin Newsom talking about how great Biden was and how what the the Democrats record that this has been one of the greatest presidencies ever. Full stop. It's like hot gas in your face. It's burning your lungs. It's just <laughs> gas lighting. It's gas lighting. You can't have a great economy if you're spending hundreds of billions of dollars financing wars overseas. It's not even possible. You're going to have inflation. You're going to have a. Would you? Do, how'd you get all that money? Where's you get another ninety-five billion that you passed in the middle of the night? Like, what is? Where's all that going? Who's paying it back? Yeah, I mean, Woo, I, that's I, a lot of money. I often think about the the guys that are um, staples of the government, not mm -hmm. the people that are part of the president. Say it. Say it. The deep state. The deep state. Them. Yes. yes. The people that are in charge. We all know who we mean. Uh, yeah, Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a, that is a hilarious I fucking love, theory. I love the conspiracy theories around that. But did that. you see that the, the, there was actually like a conversation that was had about it was what was the actual roots of it? There's an actual video where they talk about it and like, God, it's like 2017 or something like that. They're talking about using a, a really popular uh, person like Taylor Swift as like an asset. The Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's relationship is a deep state psyop to be able to wild. I love that conspiracy. It's a theory. wild conspiracy, but because the, the problem with the conspiracy is they're saying this is why Taylor Swift is so big. Like, no, no. you got to see how fifteen year old. Like, I have a fifteen year old daughter. When they're around, t like Taylor Swift songs, they all scream. They go nuts. They love it. They actually. Yeah, that's not a psyop. She speaks to them. It's not a psyop. She's super talented, fucking driven as hell, writes her own songs. Like, she speaks to them. Mm. You know, I don't know what's great. The, the whole thing is, you know, it's wild. It's wild to watch a new Michael Jackson because that's kind of what it is. That's a good point. It's like I mean, person. how many times – I would love to know how many times the Super Bowl cut to her. Uh, I saw someone win a bet that was like over 15 or something like that. <laughs> there was an over-under on the number of cuts to Taylor Swift. Let's go! One of them should chugged a beer. <laughs> One of them but she like, chugged a beer I and slammed saw, it down. Yeah, a I guy know. won a bet because he bet on the streaker bet, and then he he then was, was he the streaker? streaker? Yeah, that's what he said. That's what oh, the oh was, my but. god, that's a well. If they don't specify, <laughs> that's the good move. If they don't specify that you, I mean, look, a deal's a deal. That is a 200 IQ move. The only other 200 <laughs> IQ move that I've seen recently. There's a new type of sexual kink which is called solo poly. Solo, so polyamorous, but solo. So fuckboys have rebranded themselves as solo poly. Okay. That is a 3,000 IQ move. Don't kink shame me. I'm not sleeping around. I'm solo poly. Mm. Solo polyamorous <laughs> means someone has multiple intimate relationships with people, but has an independent or single lifestyle. <laughs> they may not live with partners, share uh, finances, or have a desire to reach traditional relationship milestones, which partners' lives become more intertwined. Hmm. Well, I think that seems to make sense with all the dating apps today and all the Instagram DMs and all the people just... There's so many more options people have today. It makes sense that more people would agree to polyamorous interactions. They want to hedge their bets. 
It's a weird time to be a, a young person. Like imagine you like just getting out of high school, just getting into college now, and you're entering into the romantic workforce. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> the meat grinder. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. It's crazy out there. Yeah. It's the, crazy. The percentage of people that say they're not looking for uh, casual or long-term relationships is at an all-time high. It's really, really scary. As our country music sales, there's like a, a swing in the other direction too. What do you mean? Country, more people are like, look, we got to get to a simpler life. There's more people who listen to country music now than I think ever before. Right. So they, they're there, finding... There's a reaction to that. Like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> they're finding solitude yeah. from a confusing world yeah. in Luke Coombs songs. Yeah. They, they're going to never tweet, uh, like, sings about tweets, you know? Right. Yes. <laughs> Fucking hell. Well, I saw uh, um, Jelly Roll was on the uh, Super Bowl commercial. That was pretty cool to yeah, see him. Cool. Yeah. And then Shane Gillis managed to pop half of his face in when the camera panned in on like the Bud Light balcony uh, or whatever it was called. Yeah, Shane Gillis is now a spokesperson for Bud Light. And we kind of manifested it on the podcast because we were talking about it so many times, like, why wouldn't they use you? Yep. They're fucking smart. They use one of the funniest guys alive who's a legitimate Bud Light drinker. He never stopped, even during the controversy. He never stopped. The first couple of shows he did afterwards, he wouldn't bring cans on stage. He'd pour it into a glass because he didn't want anybody to hear it. Mm -hmm. But he's still drinking Bud Light. And then on the podcast, we just like, you're going to drink Bud Light out in the open? He's like, fuck yeah. Dude, when you find your beer, you find your beer. Well, with Shane, that's the case. It was just a match made in heaven. Like, it's smart. It's the right time where they could take a chance on a wild dude like that. What a turnaround, man. I mean, I I'd said this at the time. I thought it was interesting that... Um, a lot of people whose common talking point was uh, don't judge someone just based on one misdeed that they do, based on one um, uh, misspoken thing about some new social campaign or whatever it might be, didn't seem to extend the same kind of leeway to Bud Light. Now, I don't know. No, weird, right? I don't know how deep that ran. There's someone that says it was a marketing in intern. There was another that says it went right to the top. And, you know, they were, they, this, was, this shows that Bud Light were the, the lib cooks that we've always knew, known that they were. I'm like, I don't know. But if it wasn't infused into the company, what you're doing is taking a very isolated incident and using that as the canary in the coal mine to say, see, they're part of the deep state. It's, it's, they're taking over. They're doing the whatever. Like, well, sort of. It was, it was not one thing. It was two things that, that, that combined together. So the one thing was the Dylan Mulvaney uh, picture on the beer can that drove people nuts. Mm -hmm. But then there was the video of the woman who was in charge who was explaining that they had to rework the image of the brand and that it was a... Uh, fratty, sort of like bro-heavy. I forget the words she used, but it was a juvenile. She was trying to literally, talk, but, but it's literally you're talking about your entire customer base. So she's deciding that the customer base should now be trans, or the customer base should. <laughs> I mean, literally. I mean, she's literally deciding she's going to make the customer base gay. It's going to be friendly to the LBGT community. It's going to be sponsoring floats on Pride Parade, and that's what they did. Like, in, under her guidance, she was like, I'm going to fix this. We're going to make it just like I believe the world is coming from universities that are hyper-liberal into a, a community where you're in a you know, corporation that's also subject to all those DEI mm -hmm. restrictions. And you think this is like the way of the world today. And then you do that one thing, and then they catch you on video saying all those things about the customers. And then the coup de grace. Kid Rock shoots your beer. 
<laughs> when, when Kid Rock shoots your beer, that's a wrap. Fucking game over. That Until is, you get Shane Gillis. Yeah, Shane Savior. Gillis. Keep, and, the, and then you sponsor the UFC. Like, it'll, it'll turn back around now. Oh. It can turn back around. What's Shane that? Gillis on stage with Zach Bryan? Yeah. Oh, shit. That's amazing. When was this? At the Super Bowl. They had a big party in Vegas. Did he sing? Yeah, I mean, it's the revival. I don't know if Which song? Is he singing All Night Revival? Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> Put Johnny on the vinyl. Wow. The whole crowd sings along to that. I went to see Zach when he was out here, and they did that. He tried to get me to sing. I'm like, "Fuck you!" <laughs> I can I'm tell not jokes. going out there. I don't want to. I just don't. I don't want any attention. Tell I just want to punch someone in the face. Yeah, I, I want to enjoy the show. But I it was, was a fucking amazing show, man. He's so talented. Where was that? That was out here. It was like the Two Step Festival. Two step in, yeah, was... Where was that? Georgetown. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, cool. not, not far from here. I learned from Schultz. This interesting thing that I, I called Schultz's razor, which is it's not coordination, it's cowardice. From the outside, things look like a coordinated attack. From mm -hmm. the inside, it looks like people not trying to lose their jobs. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the presumption is that there is some grand plan, some grand, maybe it's a conspiracy or maybe it's just coordination. What it is from the inside is this guy has just bought a new house that his wife wanted and his kids go to private school and he needs to keep this job, man. And the thing that is currently being pushed at the moment is, okay, we need to, we, we need to go along with this new campaign. Sure, let's just do this thing. Mm -hmm. That to me is a much more, I hope that it's true. The reason I hope it's true is it's a much more reassuring way for the world to be, a lot of these incidents. Yeah. Because what it shows is that people are just responding to incentives. And if you can change the incentives, if you can change the social structure of this stuff, you can quite easily change behavior. If it's coordination as opposed to cowardice, that's much more difficult. If everyone's actually bought into this and they're part of some deep state conspiracy and it's all psyopy and all of this stuff, mm. that, that you go, oh, this is completely out of my control right. now. And that, that's much more scary. But I think on balance, based on the stuff that I see, I think that Andrew's right. I think that it is more likely to be cowardice than coordination. Yeah, I think there's definitely both elements. I think spe specifically with some issues, there's, uh, there's coordination online. And one of the ways they do that is through bots. They do that through social media campaigns that are like fake accounts or hired accounts. There's that too. That, that does shift the narrative in a certain direction. But there's a lot of people that are terrified that they're going to get fired, and there's a lot of people that are terrified they're going to get labeled or ostracized or kicked out of the social community so much so they're willing to go along with really ridiculous stuff because they think, like, that's where the tide of progress is now. This is where the world is. And, you know, you're, you're seeing both things happen. You're seeing cowardice, and you're also seeing— Coordination. This, it's not—it's kind of naive to think that if you were a world power that is doing— everything you can to sort of like balance things in your favor, including launching spy satellites, establishing a space force, ramping up your nuclear capabilities, developing these weapons that fucking shred people yep. with precise impact. For sure, you're going to do whatever you can to change the way uh, a society views things and to, to influence things in a particular direction. You'd be a fool not to. I mean, if that's what other countries are doing, you'd be a fool not to do that. You'd be a fool not to do it internationally. You'd be a fool not to do it locally. 
it's kind of the job of the person that's the evil fuck that's you know running the world like that's part of the gig part of the gig is if you want to lie to people about the economy you want to gaslighting about the record of the president and gaslighting about the immigration crisis and gaslight them about how much money we're spending on these overseas wars you would gaslight them online too you wouldn't just have the fucking White House press secretary lie and make shit up. You would have a bunch of people doing it all over the Internet. You'd have a bunch of articles written that are just ridiculous. And then people would retweet them. Yeah, his age really is a superpower. <laughs> yeah, man. Seth MacFarlane retweeted that and said, this is a, a million brave, crazy, so, so brilliant that they did this. I can't. I can't. What did he say? Seth MacFarlane. Stunning and brave. Like, it wasn't stunning and brave. No, no, no. It? He didn't say it like that. He's a funny guy, but he said something like, "This is uh, put, written better than I could have written it, but exactly my sentiments." I was like, "This is so crazy. You're talking about a guy who can't speak. You, we all know you're doing this. You're gaslighting, and you're doing it because you think that this is the good side and the bad side is bad, and you, you do whatever you can to change the way people view things." And so you have these people that are doing it for virtue signaling. They're doing it to signal to the tribe that they're a strong, dominant member of this tribe. And they even, they're fighting for you. Yeah, there's something that I've been rattling around in my brain for some time. And Bill McBidden finally articulated here better than I ever could. It's worth a read from start to finish. Opinion. Age matters, which is why Biden's age is his superpower. Come on. That actually sounds like a Family Guy sketch. 100%. Or well, definitely a South Park sketch. It's crazy to say, but if you're that guy and you know you're signaling to the tribe and you wanted everybody like a rational person who is a left progressive person would say we have to figure this out. Yeah. This is bad. This I, is bad. You I, can't just pretend it's good. The whole other side sees how bad it is. The world sees how bad it. People in quiet say how bad it is. Yeah. Most people in hush when they're alone having dinner. You're like, what the fuck do we do? Yeah. Like, Trump's going to win with this guy. Yep. I don't think, no matter who wins in November, I don't think that either side is going to accept the outcome. No way. Not anymore. I think that, that I think we saw one, two elections yeah. ago, the final accepted. And even that wasn't, right? That was, no, there's Russia collusion and all the rest right. of it. And so, then how much are we going to see of organized violence? How much are we going to see of organized protesters? Organized protesters are a real thing. Funded protesters are a real thing. You Did know, that stuff turn out to be real about the piles of bricks? Yes, yes. The piles of bricks? Yes, yes. During the George Floyd riots. Yeah, during the George Floyd riots. there was, And some of them they attributed to different things. Some of them they said oh, it, was just, it was a construction site that was nearby. It was just coincidence. And some of that I'm sure is true. But the people that I talked to that said that, no, stacks of bricks would just show up on their block. Like, what? The net result of all of this, I think, is people just – feeling very uncertain about the future. I don't think that anyone's really convinced of any one narrative at the moment, but everybody is just uncertain and anxious. There's some really interesting surveys showing that the number of Americans that say, I uh, do not fully feel in control of my life, just continues to go up. There's very much a externalized uh, sense of agency. You know, it's I, I don't happen to the world. The world happens to me. Yeah. I'm skeptical about a lot of these things. It's basically a soup for ambient anxiety. Yeah. You're just causing people to be uncertain about stuff. And I don't know, I, if you were trying to make people just feel more and more and more shitty, all that they're doing is spending time inside on their phones, they're watching porn, they don't have as many friends. The number of men in 1990 that had uh, 
one or more close friends was, uh, sorry, that had zero close friends was 3%. In 2020, it was 15%. So it 5X'd from mm. 1990 to 2020. So people are more isolated than ever before. It doesn't surprise me that people feel despondent or nihilistic or fatalistic or uncertain or it's not good. And then they're being manipulated. Correct. On top of that. So you're already vulnerable. You're already scared. And when you have more of an isolation from community, you're more likely to get sucked into subgroups. You're more likely to get sucked into echo chambers because, like, finally you have some people that are connecting with you. You don't have any connection. It's like part of this little social dance you're doing. You remember that we were talking about um, whether, how you work out whether someone is telling the truth or not. It's this interesting sort of set of questions that I think people can ask themselves, which is, when was the last time that this person I am friends with or whose content I consume on the internet, when was the last time that their opinion surprised me? When was the last time that they gave a take? And I was like, huh, I might not agree with it, but that's not what I would have predicted had I have known them. Mm. Something occurs and their response is different. Uh, when was the last time that they publicly admit, admitted that they were wrong about mm. something? Also really good, uh, um, difficult to fake signal of authenticity. Uh, when was the last time that they brought someone on or had a conversation with something that they don't agree with or someone that they don't agree with for a reason other than just mocking them, but to genuinely understand what it is that they're doing? And then the fourth question is, do they bind their group together over the mutual hatred of an outgroup or the mutual love of an in-group? Is mm. it because of othering or is it because of using? And I think othering is always, that's the scapegoating. It's not about them. They're coming for us. It's this sort of anxiety-fueled yeah. thing. But if you know one of someone's opinions and from it you can accurately predict everything else that they believe, they're not a serious thinker. Right. That's the, that, that is a, a, a hallmark of bad independent political journalism. It's like ripe with othering. It's ripe with casting the blame on the other side. It's ripe with not looking internally. It's it, it, There's very little introspection thought. Maybe I'm wrong. It's always coming from a position of confidence that these other people are pieces of shit. And we're going to lay out some out-of-context examples with no context into why they think they think this and what, what could steel man that and how could how can we look at it from their perspective and what's wrong about it? No, it's every, everything is always like highlighting what's wrong, highlighting the cruelty, gaslighting, and they're doing it because they're a part of an ideology. They're a part of a political group. They're a part of this little gang and they want, they want the love of the gang. You know, and there's people that fancy themselves as like hitmen for the gang. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to go out there, and there's a lot of that during the the um, the Black Lives Matters uh, riots in um, was it was it Portland or wherever it was? It was like literally like crazy violent people. They're just wild Antifa dudes that got lumped into these serious conversations about what's ethical, what's not ethical in terms of like. What should be done about police brutality? And just psychos got involved in it with guns. You know, there's this one guy who wound up getting killed. He killed some guy, but he just killed someone who's on the other side, just decided I'm going to go kill somebody. And you, you, you can have that. And if you just have that thing that happened in Seattle where they had that whole section of the city that was closed down. Oh, and the, Chaz, the police, Chaz yeah, Chop. Police just gave it up. Just gave it up. You guys have this. They took over the police station, took over buildings. 
and they they ran it for quite a while with all sorts of chaos going on. I think they starved. After a while, they ran out of like sanitation and water and food, and they tried to grow a, a vegetable patch. And then they, they had the mayor on television saying that maybe it was a summer of love. Like, what are you talking about? This is but all of these things just highlight how uncertain people genuinely feel today because we know those things took place just in really recent time. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. It was just a a minor thing in terms of, I mean, it was a major thing in terms of the world, the impact of coronavirus, but it wasn't like airborne Ebola, you know? It wasn't like something that's going to kill everybody. Like, what what would break down that? We, we, we broke down for a disease that killed a very small fraction of people, and those people, almost all of them had four plus comorbidities almost all of them it was like in the high 90 percent wasn't it it was like 94 percent or something like that of people that died from covid had four plus comorbidities jesus yeah i didn't know that it's something nutty like that and it was mostly people that are obese diabetic uh, unhealthy so it's a big and, predisposition. Yeah, and imagine everything went that fucking haywire for something it like was that wild dude i mean to live to have lived through that it feels like a fever dream Fever dream. To think yeah. about that, like, that really happened. Like, yeah. It's going to be weird. You know, we're going to be talking to our grandkids, and they're going to be like, Granddad. CDC studies have over 75% of COVID-19 deaths in vaccinated people were amongst those with at least four, four comorbidities. That's vaccinated people, and this is from 2022. What I had read was people that got COVID before the vaccine. And they were talking about, they were trying to figure out who's dying and why. And one of them, a big one, was ventilated people. Apparently, that was a big mistake that they made. That was uh, something that uh, they learned when they went to, I think Elon Musk talked about this when he went to China. Like, what was the biggest mistake that they made during the pandemic? They put people on ventilators. Apparently, that fucks you up. And some some high number of people, like 80% or something like that, people who got put on ventilators died. As opposed to most of the people that get it. It's not It's not that high. Especially amongst healthy people and definitely not amongst children. It's very low amongst children. So when they did that, it was just like, what are you doing? You're just putting people on ventilators? And they didn't know. They thought they had to do it. And then, you know, and then the vaccine comes along. And when you find out that 75% of the people who died from COVID have four comorbidities, well, that's the problem. That's the problem. Comorbidities mean you're dying. That's the problem. But think about how much society collapsed for that thing. Not good. Obviously, COVID is not good. Obviously, a tragedy. Definitely sympathetic to anybody who lost someone. But also, that was, in terms of what could happen to the world, a, a fairly small event in terms of what could happen, like a war, like yeah. a nuclear war with Russia. Even or the like severity an of a different pathogen. Yes, severity of a different pathogen, uh, solar flares to take out the power grid. The, so this feeling of anxiety, like, oh, my God, this is not that stable. That's a valid feeling. It's a valid feeling mm -hmm. because it went so haywire just for this one thing that most I, people wind up getting. I think it pulled the veil off of a lot of people's eyes that we are in control. Right. That we have mastered we Mother Nature. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you know, it's been so long since there's been a full-scale kinetic uh, war between two countries that right. the people in charge are a part of. It's right. been so long since that's happened. And I think there's this sense, we've kind of outgrown that. 
Yeah. We're, be, we're beyond that. The, the 1940s, you know, that was that was the last dying gasps of this sort of brutal, tribal, primitive version of humanity. Right. We're beyond that. We've ascended. Look, we, we can control the weather in Dubai. They seed the clouds. Mm-hmm. We can communicate to each other instantly across the internet. We can mm-hmm. have video calls. We've conquered many of the diseases that were going to stop us previously. All of these things. Look how sophisticated we are. We have also overcome our nature. No. No, we haven't. And look what happens. Our grandkids will speak to us and go, like, Granddad, what was it like during 2020? Tell us, tell us, what was it like? And you'll have to say, fucking mental. Yeah. Absolutely fucking mental. (laughs) Fucking mental. And I lived through it. Yeah. We all lived through it. And it blows my mind. And this is the thing with this, this ambient anxiety that people have. I think it causes them not only to be uncertain outwardly toward the world, but it, it's uncertain inward mm-hmm. as well. So my friend did a mushroom trip and this question came to him, which I fucking love. He said, does the world love you for who you are or for what you do? Ooh. Mm. Does the world love you for who you are or for what you do? Isn't it a more profound question that you're assuming the world loves you? Like, why are you assuming the world loves you? Well, does the hate does the world hate you for who you are yeah. or for what you do? But it's an interesting question. Like, it, it phrased it in a weird way. It's almost like a trick question. It's almost like if I ask you, "Does your mother know you're gay?" <laughs> that's dude. Let you me know? teach you about this. So that's called a Milgram question. <laughs> there's a there's a name for this. I learned oh, about okay. it. It's called a Milgram question after the Milgram experiments where they shocked people. Oh. So a Milgram question is where any truthful response is so socially cancerous that it's impossible to give a real response. It forces you to comply. The ultimate Milgram question would be, when did you stop beating your wife? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, there's no, another one would be, uh, what makes a woman attractive? Oh. Because the socially acceptable answer to that is one that is untruthful. And the problem with this is... What is the socially acceptable answer to that? It would be to do with, uh, it's about grace and poise. You know, it's anything that isn't, Big titties. Like, <laughs> if, you say, if you say big titties, right. that you failed, right? You can't say big titties. Well, you, you can't, can't say a nice ass. If you're single, you can't if you are worried about acquiring a mate. You can't if you are of a social dynamic that needs to have your job and you have a human resources center that's very stringent. They're very strict about what they allow their people to you might affect your possibility of getting a promotion might affect your standing amongst mm-hmm. the women in the office you know they don't like when you tell the truth chris you work with women you can't say i think women with big asses and big tits are hot <laughs> as fuck you can't say that you can't say that, that even though bad. they know that it's true yeah you can't be a good person you can't be a good person and even admit that that's what i'm attracted to when which is which is odd when punishment for what people say becomes widespread, people will stop saying what they think and instead say whatever is needed to thrive. Right. And this is why limits on speech become limits on sincerity. Yes. Because I'm not going to change your opinion. Right. Do you really think that by telling me that I can't say a thing, that I'm not going to think the thing? Right. I'm just not going to say the thing and think the thing in private. Right. Right. So limits on speech become limits on sincerity. Yeah. And this is the issue with the the Milgram question. It's the issue with this circular purity spiral of the firing squads online. We were talking about it before, this sort of toxic compassion thing. 
this prioritization of short-term emotional comfort of everybody, especially dispossessed groups, over everything. Truth, long-term flourishing, everything. So a perfect example of this would be uh, body weight has no bearing on health or lifespan outcomes (laughs) because you don't want to make people who are overweight feel uncomfortable. Right. Even if your message of you're healthy as you are, you're living your true self, even if that message causes those very people to actually die sooner, the short-term emotional comfort prioritization sweeps everything to one side. It sweeps rationality. It sweeps long-term outcomes, all of that stuff. Another one would be uh, there is no advantage or benefit to children growing up in a two-parent household. Right. Even if... That causes teachers and parents to misunderstand why their kids that may come from broken homes behave in the way that they do. You don't want to do something or say something that disparages hardworking single mothers. So instead, you do the toxic compassion thing, which is the prioritization of short-term emotional comfort over long-term flourishing. Mm. And you see this everywhere. This is this performative empathy, toxic compassion thing. The reason I think it's so prevalent online is it's perfectly geared to be mimetically driven, right? All that's happening. Like, if you have some harsh truth tweet, some people are going to push it, and it, it may catch fire if it's a real truth. But a lot of the people that are, don't want to hear that, they're, they're, they're going to say that you're being judgmental, that you're being misogynistic, homophobic, xenophobic, whatever it is. Right. But if you say something which is comforting, like we need to push back against these white yeah. men, like everyone can get behind that because it seems empathetic. It's one of the problems that anyone who isn't a like hardcore card carrying liberal has on the internet at the moment, yeah. which is if you're not prepared to, if you're, if you're going to tell people things that they don't want to hear, you're going to come across like a bit of a dick for quite a lot of the things that you talk about. And that's not particularly good. But yeah, this uncertainty, this like, do people love you for who you are or for what you do, I think is a really interesting question to ask ourselves because it's that success and happiness thing again. Are you trying to achieve happiness through success? Are you trying to make the world love you, to force it by promising your value, by promising your validation, by saying, look, I must do this. But the interesting thing, and this was like the second half of his mushroom trip, was he asked himself, do I love me for who I am mm. or for what I do? Mm. So I'm asking the world to love me for who I am because if the world loves me contingent on what I do, then it feels more fragile. It feels like it can be taken away from me. Right. right? If I stopped doing what I do, my love would also cease. Well, that's a real problem with uh, guys that are in the closet, especially guys in the closet in show business. How so? Because they think the world loves them, but the world loves them for a a thing that they're not really. They're hiding their true self, and they're terrified the world will withdraw its love if they tell the truth. If they change. Yeah, if they come out. If they come out and come out of the closet and say, hey, I've been gay the whole time. If you're an actor, it's a death sentence because you cannot play straight male roles anymore. When was the last time a guy came out of the closet because it was a leading man in a major blockbuster movie? It's never happened. It's not going to happen. That's a really good point. Yeah, it's the one area where homophobia is sort of guaranteed. Leading men playing straight men in movies. You do, want, you do not want to see it. Nobody wants to see it. 
<laughs> doesn't that's, happen. That's fuck it. That's broken my brain. No, that's really that's really interesting. Yeah, there's the one guy, the Doogie Hauser guy. What's his name? Neil Patrick Harris. He played like in a sitcom, but it was like a cartoon version of a straight man. It was wasn't nobody believed it. Kevin Spacey. Ah, uh, Kevin Spacey was in the closet. He was in the closet for a long time. I mean, he came out of the closet when he got accused. Remember, mm-hmm. that's really when he came out of the closet. Everybody kind of knew he was gay. People that work with him for, certainly knew he was gay, but I think publicly it wasn't. It wasn't something that he acknowledged. Hmm. But it's a thing where, and, and he's an older man too. It's a different sort of thing, you know. But if you're a young, handsome movie star, Daniel Craig type character, people find out you're gay. Like no one wants you making out with that girl anymore. I don't buy it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting because it's that. So I would imagine that if you are one of those people that, and I, I know a couple of guys that are in the closet, and I've encouraged one of them as a friend of mine to try to come out. Um, not a good friend. I don't. He lives back in L.A., but he wanted to, and then he would not, and then he'd want to, and then he would not. And I go, well, if you ever do, you know, people still love you, man. I swear to God, it's not. It's all in your head. Just, just don't. It, it'll, it'll be a huge weight relieved off you, and you realize how much people just love you. They don't care. No one really cares, especially in the comedy world. God, the comedy world is so open-minded. Like, it's one thing. Are you funny? Everything else is just nonsense. Like, it doesn't matter what, where you come from, what part of the world. Are you good? Are you funny? If you make people yeah. laugh, yeah. then you win. And can you hang? Are you cool to hang out with? Or are you just like a psycho that only wants to be the only one that's funny and you hate everybody else who's funny? There's just a few of those guys out there too. Yeah, well, that's one of the interesting challenges, I think, that no one really ever gets to see about the gamesmanship that goes on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Like, no one knows about how easy Alan Richson from the new Reacher movie or Guy Ritchie or someone else, mm-hmm. like, no one knows about how easy they are to work with. But, right. you know, like, there'll be guys that have been on your show or been on my show or whatever. And you're like, I actually quite enjoyed the episode. But I find them very difficult to deal with. Like, they're really difficult to deal with outside of that. And I, I just they're at a disadvantage if they're not very personable, mm-hmm. if they're not really uh, – if they don't respond right. uh, uh, in a timely manner or whatever. Like for, they don't and, re- understand the dynamics or imbalance between a famous person and a person trying to talk to the famous person. Absolutely. All yeah. of these things, right? And you're like, well – that puts you at a disadvantage. But that's not anything that's ever going to be front front of house. Right. And, uh, you know, you saw this with a number of the late night show hosts recently that kind of the tide came back in and yeah. who was swimming naked or swimming with a whip in their hand or, you know, being mean to the people that they worked with. Yep. That kind of got shown. And this, again, it's that toxic compassion thing. And this comes full circle to what we were talking about. You were saying um, a lot of people assume kind of the the worst of intentions here's, here's a little morsel of something and oh that, that's the fucking that, that's them being a really bad person yeah i think that that's because deep down a lot of the people doing the performative empathy toxic compassion thing know that they're projecting a lie they know that they aren't being truthful that if someone did open the cupboard and have a look inside that it's full of disgusting scary lies and 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 fakery and persona and all this mm. stuff so they assume that theory of mind for everybody else as well. Right. They can't imagine a world in which this slight slip up by somebody couldn't be indicative of their entire personality because they themselves know that this super cutesy, sweetsy, toxic compassion, performative empathy front is just that. That if you poked it hard enough, there would be a hole and you'd find out that it was hollow inside. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think... I think obviously all of that is accentuated by social media. And 
unfortunately, when I really extrapolate, when I really like look forward, I think this, the way out of this is mind reading. This is what, what? I'm, I'm really concerned with. I'm really concerned with um, the way out of this being some sort of new level of integration that we're all going to enjoy because of technology. Neuralink type stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that would be really a solution to all that ails us in terms of it. Would, it would be like Snap Map times a billion. It would be crazy. Everyone would know Mind everything map. about everybody's thoughts. But then it would be that thing like, "Hey, what do you got to hide?" You know, there's going to be a lot of dummies that are going to go along with that. But you're going to find out how fucking insane a lot of people are too if you can actually look into their mind and see the wiring. Well, I bet that the people who are out front, the most empathetic, kind, loving, caring people. They are going to be. They would be first on my list for get inside that guy's mind. Yeah, have a look at what he's doing because I think that he's probably a piece of shit. He like, might be. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyone that's working that hard to be like, look at how nice I am. Look at how completely yeah. you know unfettered snow, completely untouched, right. all of this stuff. I. I'm, it's always like the male feminists or like some of the, the sneaky fuckers. Fucking yeah. hell. Have you been observing or have you been seeing this skew of young boys to the right and young girls to the left? In yes. terms of their political yeah. uh, perspective, dude, I think I think that will be the story of 2024. I think that's the story of this year. This huge breaking of young Gen Z males, teenage boys mostly, to the right and of girls really sharply to the left. Yeah, you know what's going to change that? An actual hot war. Everybody will go right over, right back over. As you think? As it, yeah, the, when the ladies need, they need men to take care of them, and that the men that have joined their side are all cowards and they're going to cry. Yeah, yeah, they go, they go to the other side quick. There's a lot of news stories at the moment about uh, left-leaning girls struggling to find a guy that they're attracted to. <laughs> like, I, you know, none of the guys that I'm dating want to hold the door open for me, and none of them really want to pay for dinner. And he's got that. That's called a conservative. Yeah. Like that's called someone who's right wing. Yeah. You're looking for all your cake and you want to eat it too. Yeah. But <laughs> because people date within their political sphere, mm -hmm. typically, it's not just a political crisis, it's a mating crisis as well. Right. You know, I think one, it's a behavior crisis. one third of Democrat parents say that they would be afraid of their son or daughter dating a Republican. Wow. So you've got this assortative mating thing. But going forward into the political cycle this year, I think that you're going to see. Not only is it a political war, but it's a gender war, too. It's going to be a lot of fun for us, buddy. <laughs> we're going to have lots we're, to talk we're about. Have lots to talk about. It's going to be like we have what a harvest we have coming up. Like we're farmers. <laughs> if we were growing pumpkins, it's a banner year, buddy. Look at those fucking pumpkins. What a year, <laughs> Chris. You're an awesome guy to talk to. I really appreciate you, man. I, and I really enjoy your show. Tell everybody where to watch it. Your set's amazing. The set you set up in LA is really cool. Too. Thank you. We're it's working hard cool. with this. Yeah. I really appreciate you. You've been super kind, super supportive. So I, I very much appreciate that. Modern Wisdom, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen. It's a really good show. I really, really enjoy it. You're you're such a great conversation list, and it's so many of the topics are so so well covered. It's just a really solid show, man. I really appreciate you. My pleasure. I appreciate you too. Hell Welcome yeah. to Texas, motherfucker. We did it. I'm glad you got a Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everybody.